Hey everybody, welcome to the ninth anniversary of the podcast that goes snicked. I'm your host, Jason, still the best art venable. <laughs> I'm joined by several special guests. We have Grant, spitting teeth into the desert sand Richter. Hello. Hi, Grant. We have Cameron, alone with my hologram Sinclair. Hey, Cameron. What's going on? And John, always in the middle of my bubble bath, Wilson. That's where you want me, baby. That's right. And Al, V stands for Acolyte, right? Sedano. Hey, Al. Eh, v stands for many things. <laughs> right. Maybe he was the fifth Acolyte, and that's just how it, how it ran down. But anyway, many, many moons ago, the X-Men celebrated their 30th anniversary. And we're going to use that excuse to celebrate my ninth anniversary. <laughs> So we're going to talk about Fatal Attractions, the uh, big X crossover event from the summer of 93. So I guess for posterity, maybe you're listening to this in like 2093. We mean 1993. So, um. <laughs> <laughs> And we also watched the movie that this was based on with Michael Douglas and Glenn Close. <laughs> you did. Okay. Yeah, that was that was not that was a bonus bonus uh, homework. <laughs> it seemed a really vague adaptation, like the source material. <laughs> they ventured far and wide. <laughs> okay. All right. No bunnies so, were harmed in the making of these comics. <laughs> so we have to put Michael Douglas in an X Men movie. Who are we casting him as? <laughs> um, that's a really great question. Mastermind. <laughs> what was that, Grant? Mastermind. Mastermind. Nice. The creepy one. <laughs> Right. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, so we have a hand- Cooper. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yes, that one probably, you know, personality-wise, maybe. <laughs> but awesome. Well, yeah, so we have a handful of issues and a lot of people in talking. So we're going to go ahead and jump into the event. But um, just right up front, um, want to thank everyone for taking time out of their schedules uh, to to help celebrate nine years of the podcast and go snitch with me. Um, all these guys have been on multiple times and just have been, you know, good friends of the show. So I'm just very happy to share this um, episode with them. And yeah, but obviously, um, just run through quick. We'll do like full information at the end. But um, if anyone wants to plug what show they're coming from or recently coming from maybe in john's case but um yeah i just want to kind of we'll go around um grant you want to talk about your new superman podcast for just a sec sure um i run a superman podcast called truth justice and hope and it's about superman in the rebirth era beginning with convergence it's a really new show so i've only got two episodes under the belt so far I'm working on episode three right now. We're in the middle of the Lois and Clark miniseries that came out between Convergence and Rebirth. And I'm also on Twitter at About, Super, at about Superman. Awesome. Thank you, Grant. And uh, John, I know you just wrapped up a, a show that was very near and dear to me, but you want to talk about the end of that and anything else you might have coming down the pike? So there are 173 episodes of Make Ours Marvel at there, plus some bonuses, um, which was a journey between me and Michael Kaiser from the very beginning of the Marvel Universe. That's the Marvel Comics Universe, not the Cinematic Universe. So we started the Fantastic Four number one and worked our way, got up to the beginning of 1968 comics-wise before we had to close the doors on the show. It's one of those open-ended projects you just go until you can't anymore. Um, (laughs) But not to be done away 
with as far as podcasting goes, I'm almost done. I've got like a half dozen more um, episodes to record of Superman in Crisis, which is coming out at the beginning of the new year. Um, Every week we'll be talking about the uh, issue of Crisis on Infinite Earths and the Superman adventures that were published that week 37 years earlier. So January 3rd, 1985 was crisis number one and a DC comics presents issue And that coverage. will be coming out on January 3rd, 2022. Wow, so we'll be cool. going through weekly for a year and a half talking about um, crisis story, Superman and his family of characters, what they were doing at the same time. And then going on to the end of pre-crisis Superman. So look for that at the beginning of 2022. Well, I know that's what I'll cool. be listening to. Yeah, that's really awesome. And you know, I can barely keep my episodes in order. John, your management of like having stuff line up timeline wise is, is always really impressive to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So this, this, is, this is a finite thing. I wanted to get it all done before I even started releasing them. So that's been my summer project. Nice. Very cool. And Al, why don't you talk <clears throat> about yes, Resurrections? I host, yep. I host Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast. It's well all about the Marvel characters. Adam Warlock and Thanos. Why do you ask me that question? I mean, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> it's in the name. Right. But yeah, it's all about Adam Warlock and Thanos. And for the most part, Jim Starlin stuff, because, well, he did like 90% of the stuff with them. Right. So, and we are slowly working our way. And eventually in the next decade we'll, or three, we'll get up to Infinity Gauntlet. <laughs> <laughs> well, the episode y'all did with me for Infinity Gauntlet was a lot of fun. And so... I'm I'm interested to hear what your thoughts may or may not kind of change and evolve as you actually work through the material and get there. Oh, so. I'm just gonna be lazy and just reuse that episode <laughs> as well. Hey, you I don't advise that, but you're welcome to. I'm actually know. just gonna break them up into six episodes and boom, I'm done. <laughs> That's a fair to call people. That's like six weeks wor- six weeks worth of work out of the way right there. There you go. <laughs> I'm bi weekly. That's twelve weeks. Oh wow. Nice. <laughs> All right. So uh for Fatal Attractions, just some very brief background before we jump into the event. Um, the return of Magneto in 1993 was kind of one of the worst-kept secrets in comics. Um, everyone knew it was coming. The, the anniversary was coming up. There were lots of teases and hints. Uh, through the various X-Men and Wolverine episodes we've covered in the last several flashback episodes, there's been a whole lot of like, oh, I wonder if Magneto's alive. Let's go see if Magneto's alive. And, of course, he's going to. And so that's kind of where this event starts, kind of coming out of that. You know, Wolverine had a mission down to the Savage Land that we talked about and, you know, just trying to see what's going on with Magneto. And and here we are. So we're going to start with X-Factor number 92. Just so, Can I put one little thought on that? Yes, please. I just, as I was reading this and noting the uh, release dates, I thought this is a pretty unusual structure because even though it's a crossover between six titles, it's not the six titles that all came out in one month or even two months. For the most part, this was one chapter a month. So X-Factor's chapter, and then all the other titles have normal stories. X-Force's chapter the next month while everybody else is doing normal stories and X-Factor's in recovery, et cetera, et cetera. Until you get to the end, Wolverine and Excalibur came out, you know, within a week of each other, but everything right. else was spread out, which made the Fatal Attractions headlines sitting on newsstands for months. Right? Yeah, and which is pretty cool and very different from how you see things today, right? Where everything's like, you know, condensed down. Yeah, right. So, yeah, definitely an approach. You know, 
and this is one of the last things I read in real time of my first comic collection. I, I think, you know, the the higher price tag, which now at three fifty sounds laughable, but you know, back when, back when I was there, you know, trying to spend my lawn money and deciding where it should go, um, you know, it, it was kind of starting to bum me out a little bit. I had been recently severely burned out and quit Spider-Man over Maximum Carnage. Um, and yeah, my, my ex budget or interest of time, budget of money and time was waning a little bit. So I got through this and then maybe another couple of months and then. I, I was on to driving my car and doing other stuff. <laughs> so th- we're real close to kind of where I, I kind of left, checked out for a little while until I got back into comics uh, after college. So, yeah, actually, we're a little bit past where I dropped a lot of the X books, especially because of college and stuff. Actually, yeah. I, I think I think I'd read Excalibur at some point because I've read most of Excalibur and I was still getting X Factor for a few more issues, so like 100. But I've actually never read any of the other issues. This is the first oh, nice. time for all of those. That's cool. I'll be definitely interested to see how your thoughts go for that. All right, cool. Well, X Factor 92 um, is going to be the first chapter, and it is The Man Who Wasn't There. Uh, oddly enough, uh, co-plotted by Scott Lobdell. Now, this has been Peter Davis' book for a little bit. Um, he's not partaking in this event which is interesting because i think in the previous couple of events he had kind of been the writer that tried to take the piss out of the event so maybe they just got fed up with him i don't know he's <laughs> no. i believe he's off the book by now oh is he completely yeah. oh, that okay. sounds right yeah i think okay. yeah, he, i think he definitely left around this time it wasn't by now it was definitely like right at oh, this time okay all right well then yeah oh, but speaking context. of him i have something to say remind me later uh, when we get to the, the uh, x-men issue i have something to say about that about peter david oh okay that's very cool. Yeah. Right. Well, Joe Quesada is the penciler and co-plotter, but then J.M. DeMatteis wrote the script. So a lot of a lot of fingers in this pie. Uh, Al Milgram is the inker. Uh, Richard Starking is the letterer, and there's a background assist by Cliff Van Meter, <laughs> and then Gwyneth Oliver does the colors. So there's a I would not have guessed that because I actually thought this was felt pretty solid of a chapter, but there's a whole lot of things, a whole lot of moving pieces on this one. Um, so uh, with the event, we have wraparound covers. This one by Quesada features Havoc and Random with a Havoc hologram and then just a bunch of acolytes fighting on the back. Uh, any particular thoughts about this cover? On the Marvel Unlimited, you only get the front cover and there's oh. no hologram. you don't get to see the hologram, so it's too bad. Yeah. I have no idea who's on any of the holograms. Oh, okay. The Xbox one. Uh, while I I don't know if I can really comment on the covers individually, they all have a very stark sameness to them. They do. They do. Um, and this, as an example of that sameness, is fine. But it's the one thing about this uh, uh, crossover that I'm really not very positive on at all is that the covers right. are not the best part at all. They don't jump out. They're just, they're all like, here's hero fight fighting. Yeah, they're all fight scenes, and they're all very, very similar. Um, all right, cool. I'm going to do my best to keep this synopsis somewhat brief, and then we'll just kind of go round robin. I'll just I'll call people. Obviously, if you guys want to riff on an idea, go ahead and jump in. I know we'll have some kind of organic chatter, but um, we'll, we'll kind of work these issues the best we can here. So, X-Factor 92. The cowardly acolytes attack a hospice center to slaughter humans in Magneto's name. X-Factor comes to talk to a nurse that survived but was critically injured by Senyaka. She asks who Magneto was to inspire such violence. 
as Quicksilver, uh, still Magneto's son at this time in continuity, uh, tries to answer the nurse flatlines in his submarine headquarters. Yes, that submarine. Uh, Cortez swears Quicksilver will be dealt with. Meanwhile, as X-Factor interrogates Spore, the kind of the Bigfoot uh, acolyte guy, um, he bows down and worships Quicksilver, quote-unquote, the sun. Spore gives up the next acolyte target, Cooper takes Quicksilver only with random as insurance and hopes his holiness can defuse the acolytes without a fight. But Havoc is skeptical and his X-Factor follows along until they're caught by Exodus. But Exodus just kind of flies off. <laughs> he doesn't really do anything with X-Factor at this point, but it is his first appearance, so he's there. Um, so when Cooper and co. arrive at Camp Hayden, they are accosted by Bigatrice metal armored guards and Senator Kelly. Quicksilver questions why such a low-profile base is an acolyte target to begin with, and also why is it so heavily guarded, and why is Senator Kelly here? All good questions, he thinks. That is when Cooper reveals Project Wide Awake. Classic Sentinels with Nimrod upgrades. X-Factor shows up and are justifiably indignant. Quicksilver defends the project. Kind of a surprise turn there, saying he understands how terrible Magneto and the Acolytes are and understands the measures humans would and maybe should take to defeat them. Right on cue, the Acolytes launch their attack on the base as X-Factor fights the Acolytes. Senator Kelly prepares to salvage the Sentinels while Cortez tries to recruit Quicksilver. Wolf's Bane saves Senator Kelly from frenzy. Quicksilver, of course, refuses Cortez's advances, but Cortez says, Oh, but I planted a seed, which makes Quicksilver really pissy. Uh, so Cortez has Voight uh, teleport the Acolytes away. Cooper throws up green smoke. Oh, she was mind-controlled the whole time! But she did know about Wide Awake, and X-Factor is question mark through with her? I don't think so, but they act like they kind of are. Um, and yeah, that's that one. So, just overall, I thought it was kind of pretty good art and a good start to the story, if maybe not entirely this story. Um, <laughs> but uh, we'll kind of go, I'll kind of try to go in a different order each time. So, uh, Cameron, general thoughts, highlights, lowlights? Um, <clears throat> I mean, it's a good it's a good start, I think, to this, uh, this uh, crossover that we're getting here. <clears throat> Um, I only had a couple of random thoughts that I was going to throw out that I thought were kind of interesting rather than broad thoughts on this one is it kind of, it kind of sets a lot of things up a little bit. Um, I thought, I thought there's a, there's a quote in there and I forgot, I forgot to write down who said it, but somebody says the first responsibility of a democracy is to the majority, Mm -hmm. uh, which I thought was an interesting statement that may or may not have aged very well over time. Um, (laughs) I thought it was a a pretty, pretty big statement in the moment. Um, I also got, I fell down a couple of uh, random history holes out of this too, because I was thinking (laughs) about how, you know, the nineties, nineties was obsessed with talking about genocides in so many different ways in popular culture and in, you know, actual genocides going on. And I thought it was interesting that they're talking about genetic cleansing and, you know, they're using some of these terms. Um, and so then I, I looked these things up cause I'm a nerd <coughs> and just like that there are, we have the real big genocides of the nineties that happened right after, uh, which of course, R- Rwanda in 1994 and then Bosnia in 1995, uh, which I'm not saying that they caused those genocides by any means, but I just thought it was really interesting that they're using a lot of that language and talking about it 
in in you know just months before some of these things really play out on, on the world stage stage and i also thought when they used the term brown shirts it made me try to remember what the uh italian <laughs> version of that was uh and so that's the uh Caminese Nere, the black shirts. I don't know if anybody in the world cares about that, but to me, I was like, what were the fascist Italians called? <laughs> the black shirts. So <laughs> I stuck on that one for a while. Um, the other one that I was going to mention, which is a lot lighter, is that I got a big kick out of how um, Guido kept making jokes that weren't really funny. Like he just kept talking about he was going to throw up. But then Havoc seemed so perturbed. Like no one could focus on the mission because they were laughing so hard at Guido's jokes. And so he kept telling him <laughs> to stop and focus on the mission. But I don't know. I got a kick out of it because every joke was just like, I think I'm going to puke. He's like, stop, Guido. We got to focus. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And somebody somebody actually puke? Summer's hard ass and just, just can't, can't <laughs> be in check. That's true. We can't have a moment of levity in the Summer's, right. summer's house. <laughs> By the way, okay, yeah, now was, it's a lot um, of levity. The quote you're talking about was from Val Cooper, or the possessed Val Cooper. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Right. Which fits very well with uh, the Val Cooper character. Right. Yeah, or is it the possessed version of her trying to make it worse? Possibly, yeah. That's a good point. Oh, that was another thought well, I was going to mention. Hearing... Go on. Oh, I was going to say that yes. uh, I also thought it was interesting that Val Cooper is, she was such, she's such a tough, I mean, she always kind of is, right, but the super tough character but then at the very end, when they have the moment of the reveal that she was being controlled, she just kind of fell into a pile of sniveling mess, which I thought was really weird um, and odd for her character. Because even uncontrolled, she's always such a tough character. And I thought right. that was kind of strange. Yep. All right. Uh, Al, why don't you go ahead and, and jump in there and just some thoughts? Well, first thought I had is looking at this. It's weird that it's Joe Quesada because maybe it's been a while since I looked at his art, but I'm looking at this and I really got a kind of early 90s Jay Lee quality from it. Interesting. Like, especially with his use of like a lot of shadow panels and kind of yeah. like far away things or like that part, the cover, where, I mean, the title where it says the man who wasn't there and you have like the silhouette of Quicksilver walking away in the war balloon. It just reminds me a lot of like early 90s Jay Lee. Yeah. So that has to do with Milgram's inks, because I remember when we were doing Executioner's song, the Jay Lee issues of X Factor that he did that looked better were the ones that had Milgram's inks over it. Ah, there we go. All right. So I'm not completely off base. Nice. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's not a bad start to the story. I mean, looking at these issues, it's kind of well, it's a different crossover because it technically doesn't really go part one to part two to part three exactly. But it does kind of like a way where it starts off with this and it goes up. The threat level goes up until you get to the two X-Men books in the middle and then kind of goes down afterwards, you know, down, right. you know, where, you know, really Excalibur is almost like an epilogue than the final chapter. Right. So this is not a bad start, especially since obviously Magneto doesn't show up here yet. So we kind of it's almost like a prologue to it. Um, at least X-Factor gets to participate in this. I mean, they're really not going to participate <laughs> much in the rest except for Quicksilver. Right. But there's that. Um what else was I going to say about this? Oh, yes, yeah, Senator Senator Kelly. Oh, yeah, the other well, thing I was thinking was Senator Kelly. It's like, how many times has Senator Kelly done this and then had something change his mind? And then he goes back. I mean, I don't know if the guy just can't make up his mind or he really is just that much of a dick. And he just likes to screw with them by saying by making them think, well, maybe your act of kindness is going to change me. And then he walks right. away laughing. Right. Because didn't that happen in Uncanny 141 and when his wife <laughs> with his wife and the rogue didn't, you know, mask mold issues on like 248. I think it happens once or twice more. Yeah. Oh, and, Kelly. Yeah. And also the part of the Quite Awake 
it was interesting. As much as they fought the Sentinels, that whole Project Wide Awake thing has, goes back as far as I can remember to New Mutants number two. And at least yeah. that's the first time I remember seeing it. And yet this yeah. is the first time that any of the X characters are actually hearing the name. Like, none, they just knew Sentinels. You know, they never had a clue of what part of the government or what branch or what organization was, you know, in charge of them. You know, now they actually have a name, actually. So, I don't know, is this the longest plot thread that... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. The slowest reveal ever. Exactly. Right. <laughs> it's only, what, 25 issues of X-Force, 100 issues of... <laughs> How many yeah. years is that? John, a you lot. do math. Seven. <laughs> I, 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 don't think, I don't think so. <laughs> I think it's like 11. But yeah, and um, finally, yeah, Val Cooper, I don't know. It is kind of a bit out of character for her to do the crying thing. Maybe it's the trauma of being mind-controlled. Maybe it's just because she actually liked these, likes these people a bit as opposed to the last group she had, Freedom Force, where she probably was wishing every day she was told she could just put a bullet in them. Right. You know, these people she can actually get along with at least. Mostly. Somewhat. Maybe not Madrox. Maybe not. Now, Madrox did have, have a really cool element that I did not put in the synopsis because it's probably not all that important. But when he lets the guy bite his hand and then multiples inside. Oh, and, yeah. And like pulls like a Wolverine, like busted him out from the inside. That was pretty awesome. So. All right. Well, um, Grant, when you, when do you, when are your kind of overall reaction to this one? I really like Joe Q's art in this. Um, it's yeah. not stylized as Strowman's, but it's more stylized than what I think of as the general X-Men house style of the time. So it feels like them transitioning away from X-Factor being kind of like the outlier book and being more of the, the core X universe. Um, so I think that that was kind of neat. Um, I really like Senyaka's design. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember if this is his first appearance or not, but for someone who didn't like X-Men in the 90s, I had a lot of X-Men action figures, and I was obsessed with the Senyaka figure. <laughs> you could only get it, like, if you signed it for a Toys R Us credit card or something. And I was oh, wow. That, so I, like, stocked the store, like, give me it. But, yeah, I just <laughs> got it. Um, yeah, I really like that where, where Jamie blows up Melon Camp from the inside. <laughs> <laughs> there's, an, there's an obvious joke that they that they didn't go for with Melon Camp. You know, if he'd been like a cat man, it would have been a lot funnier. Oh, right. Yeah. But, uh, that was pretty funny. Um, I think it was pretty good. I, I hate the Kleinstock brothers. Their power makes no sense. That looks like they'd fall over all the time. <laughs> um, right. I don't get them at all. But yeah, that's pretty good. It's a pretty decent issue. All right. Four claws. <laughs> that's cool. All right, Mr. John, when did you, you think of this this one coming out of the gate? Well, just for the record, I did run over to the um, Chronology Project and look up Senyaka. He was in Uncanny 300 before this. Yes. And that's ah. it. Um, okay, so X-Factor is in this kind of weird transitional period right now because Peter Dave is no longer here. And I'm not sure they have their own direction. I don't remember if... Um, Never mind. Scratch that train of thought. I did basically enjoy this story. Um, there were some the, the the acolytes come on and they're so super nineties as far as bad guys go with yeah. their armor designs and their face shields and everything else. But I kind of dig the aesthetic. It just turns them into a bunch of of like same person. Senyaka yeah. stands out because he does have an unusual design. But several chapters down the road, someone's like, okay, so. I've kind of lost track of who's who here and they all like identify themselves. The nightcrawler's like, okay, thanks. Cause right. I really wasn't sure. Right. Yeah. Nightcrawler's um, is a reader perspective there for sure. Yeah. And I do like that. Some of the acolytes question what they're doing in this. Like they're not 
once they're in the field and they're in mission, they're all doing their thing. But when they're on headquarters, not everyone is certain about what's going on. And although it's only one person and she's immediately chastised, it just kind of <laughs> gives you some context that maybe some of them, you know, they're not monolithic. Right. Uh, I felt that strong guy definitely had a quicksilver pegged. Um, what does he say? Did I miss something? I mean, did the Pope just walk in the room or maybe Sharon Stone? <laughs> Looks like after all these years of wanting to be God, Pietro finally got his wish. Right. <laughs> but they're all freaking out about the sun, and I'm sitting here going, but Polaris is in the room. <laughs> is she not Magneto's no. daughter in 1993? Not at this point. No. Not at this point? At this point, I believe it had been revealed that that was a robot Magneto that told them it was his daughter. Okay. So that was actually pretty early in the run. I thought maybe they had gone back on that again. Okay, so she's she's not. Okay, I'm going to echo the thoughts on the first responsibility of a democracy is to the majority. I mean, if you're serving the needs of the people, sure, hit the majority needs first. But if you're making decisions that are going to involve violence against the minority, then maybe the majority's needs aren't <laughs> the first concern here. Right, right. And I realized that one of the really big themes with Magneto is that having been ostracized as and 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 abused and you know you know, attempted to be killed so many times as a member of two different uh, racial groups. And now he's turning it back against basically everybody else. The word racism gets bandied around a lot. And in 1993, we may have used the word a little bit differently than we would in 2021, 22, whenever this is coming out. I just, it, it's maybe important to point out that in nowadays discourse, racism includes the like inherent power dynamic. And so if you have a mutant or you have a Jewish person, or you have any other member of an oppressed or ostracized or, or marginalized people, and they are retaliating, that's not racism. That's justified resentment. And sure, it can get radicalized. But, you know, I just, I don't know, thoughts I had while I was reading right. this. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I really wasn't sure what Exodus was when he first appeared. I was like, <laughs> oh, okay, is that X Factor story or what? He's very non sequitur. Yes. And Hi, I'm, I'm here. On, you, Hi. Yeah, yeah. Hello. And I honestly wasn't entirely sure what was going on with Val Cooper at the end because like she coughed up green smoke that was controlling her mind, but then it didn't seem that there was really anything of consequence as far as her role in the story that was lost as a result. She still seems pretty culpable for everything she's done so right. far. And so I don't know what the point of that element in the story was. And maybe that gets played with more in the following issues of X Factor because it's more of an X Factor beat than a um, Fatal Attractions. But yeah, uh, I, I don't remember from those other ones. And you're right, because, I mean, she only brings Quicksilver there. The others followed. She, it's not like she ordered all of them to come with her. So, yeah, I didn't right. catch that. You're right, though. So, so yeah, um, as far as an opening chapter to Fatal Attractions, I thought it was, you know, nice because the threat is still veiled this came out the same day as the last chapter of the savage land story where they are still vaguely but strongly hinting at magneto <laughs> right um i really did like the title because it reminded me of that poem yesterday upon the stair i saw a man who wasn't there he wasn't uh -huh. there again today i wish i wish he'd go away <laughs> anyways nice. um but yeah just just some thoughts on the issue okay 
Well, uh, we'll kind of go back around then. So, John, when do you want to grade X Factor 92? I'm going to give it four. Um, I, I, I think it was fine. It didn't do a whole lot for me. And like I said, the acolytes were really kind of samey. Um, but there were some decent beats with the characters. Uh, it was a fully functional issue. I just didn't, it didn't do a whole lot of strong points for me. So four. Okay. And trying to make sure I do the right order. Uh, Grant, I think that puts you next. And you, I think you already kind of hinted at three or a four. Which one did you land on? Yeah, I'm going to go with the four. I, I really like the art a lot. The story was fine, but it wasn't great. So, yeah, it's right above average. Okay. Um, Al, what about you? Uh, do we do half scholars? Because I want to do yeah, four and half pop claw. Okay. <laughs> the art I really like enjoyed. Story was pretty decent, but concerning the fact that at the time, especially X Factor and Excalibur, or well, up until recently, Excalibur, <laughs> were the titles I really was enjoying, but they always seem to get sidelined on these crossover things. The fact that X Factor actually got to participate with all their members gives it that extra half claw for me. Okay. So they actually got to do something and not just stand around and then be left alone. Right. Awesome. Cameron, where are you going to end up on X Factor 92? Um, I'm going to go with a four as well. I think it was a it was a good start to this crossover, but not necessarily a great one. Okay. Well, I'm going to be the high man on the, the book then. I gave it five out of six claws. I really dug the art. I thought there were enough character beats. And I think even though why some of the seeds planted are actually for stuff outside of the event, I still thought it was a pretty strong introduction and had me kind of excited to see what was going to happen next. Which, speaking of next, will be X-Force number 25. That would be me. Okay, so X-Force number 25 is written by Fabian Nicieza, penciled by Greg Capullo, inked by Green, Hannah, Palmiotti, Wyatt, Conrad, and Nogra. Which <laughs> <laughs> says a lot about the schedule of the book. Yeah. George Russo is lettered by Chris Iliopoulos. Uh, it's got a pretty, you know, standard for this crossover cover with uh, it's another wraparound with Cable squaring off against Exodus and some of the X-Force people are on the ground and some are kind of backing Cable up and there's a big old hologram sticker of Cable, which is the only one I get to see on, uh, on Marvel Unlimited. But while Magneto contemplates a recruitment drive from Xavier students, Cable shows up at X-Force's hideout and beats up everybody just to say hi. <laughs> Shatterstar and Farrell get weird about it. Sunspot and Richter are mad until Cable clears up some sub, sub subplots of mistaken identity, and he gets some good hugs from Boomer and Cannonball. Cable determines that Rusty and Skids, recently rescued from the MLF, have been implanted with a neural brainwashing device by Strife, and that, hit, and that the technology to fix them might be on his satellite space station, Grey Malkin. After Cable drops a metric ton of exposition... <laughs> Their base is invaded by Exodus, who declares that Sam and Bobby have been chosen by Magneto to be his new acolytes. Sam agrees for both of them, but only if Boomer, Richter, Skids, and Rusty can come with, too. Exodus teleports everyone, coincidentally, to Grey Malkin, now renamed Avalon, where Magneto shows off his new fancy space robe and cures Rusty and Skids of their brainwashing. Cable and the rest of the team head that way in a spaceship, followed by following the tracking beacon Sam left behind. Cable gets really mad that Magneto was taking over his space station and decides to blow it up. But Sam has a philosophical debate with him and convinces him not to, especially since Gids and Rusty have decided to stay with Magneto. Cable still body slides everyone else back to the spaceship, though, and heads out to save Grey Malkin, the AI professor. Grey Malkin's AI professor. Unfortunately, cybernetics and laser guns are no match for Omega-level magnetism powers, and Magneto rips him to shreds. 
Cable body slides to safety with Professor intact and a new commitment to the team while Magneto prepares to turn his attention to the X-Men. The end. So, uh, my thoughts first. Yeah. Okay. Um, this was awesome. It's, this was pretty much a Cable story guest starring X-Force, um, which, <laughs> which I like. Um, I mean, Capullo's art is fun. Um, there's a lot of uh, jokes written on the walls and Cable's guns in this book, <laughs> uh, which... And, okay, there's some Cable-centric stuff that I have to talk about. So Cable's exposition basically tells everybody, you know, that he's Nathan Christopher Charles Summers without telling them. He's, you know, he says, I was taken to the future and apocalypse and the technovirus and yada, yada, yada without saying it, which which makes me wonder about the timing of this one, because we'd already talked about how these were spaced apart month by month. The issues of Cable, where it's actually determined that he's baby Nathan, won't come out for about three or four months after this. So I wonder Issue if- four was running late and hadn't quite hit yet. So he's coming back from an arc that hasn't even finished. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> the terrible arc with his uh, goatee and Beavis and Butthead hair. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. <laughs> and I, want, I got a comment on the scene uh, towards the end where I Magneto rips Cable apart because it just looks like robot parts and gears and motor oil. Um, if about five issues after this in Cable is where he mentions that he has enough control over his technovirus that he can make it look like lesser technology for <laughs> reasons to trick people into thinking he was just a regular old cyborg. So that's weird, but this was a whole lot of Nicieza going back and overriding everything that Liefeld did from the time that he took over writing uh, New Mutants and X-Force, which I really appreciate because Nicieza stuff is much better. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, okay, that that's it for me. Uh, yeah, I don't have a whole, just a couple of kind of interesting things. So that little headshot of the screen is chronologically actually Adam X's first appearance. <laughs> His debut won't come out for another couple of months in um, X-Force. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, of course, uh, Warpath being a porno for Pyro's fan I thought was fun. Um, and the only other thing I thought was kind of funny, they talk, they keep mentioning Farrell's accent. But I feel like Fabian's writing an accent that's very not, it's like just an accent accent. <laughs> It's not, and I know, I know, uh, Farrell's supposed to be Latina, yeah. but I'm not sure in his attempt to Claremont, um, and give everyone a very distinct dialect. I'm not sure he really nails it, but yeah. anyway, I just thought it was funny. It's kind of a, she definitely talks funny, but I don't know if she necessarily has like a Latina accent like you would expect. And um, it doesn't come out that often. She mostly right. sounds normal. Yeah. Yeah. It's normal. She mostly sounds like standard English. Right. It actually looked a bit like the accent they would try giving to Vibe in the uh, Detroit era JLA. Oh, okay. All right. That's the only reason I was able to read. Because at first, when I first, looking at that first, I was like, wait, what is that? And I realized, wait, the U, using the U is like J-O-U. Like, wait a minute. That's the same thing they did with Vibe. <laughs> that's funny. So. And the only other thing I, I wanted to mention is this is the first chapter where they name drop the event. Uh, towards the end of the, the pages, they talk about... It's actually page 45 on the physical copy. Not sure what it is on the Marvel Unlimited, but um, Magneto says, and I am the overlord of fatal attraction. So, so you get that. So one has to say it. Uh, yep. All right, so maybe go a little bit different kind of backwards order. So, John, what were your thoughts on X-Force? So I was impressed that Magneto was finally appearing. 
mm-hmm. but it's funny because he's in shadows at the beginning. So like they're still trying to pretend. <laughs> um, but by the end of the issue, he's he's full on Magneto. Um, Havoc was such a trash leader in the previous chapter that when Cannonball came out giving sensible orders and everyone's doing what he says, he just comes off as such a immediately better leader than uh-huh. Havoc was. Mm-hmm. Um, I also really appreciated Cable's um, info dump because I feel like it's taking all of the little elements that have been dropped along the way and bringing it all into one series of balloons. And I think he even has some new information in there that he hadn't had before. So it's just everything that you could know about cable is on that one page. Mm -hmm. The summer's connection is still not explicitly made. And even in Excalibur, it's only still subtly hinted at, but um, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's nice to see all that laid out. Um, I was also wondering about Farrell's accent. I did not really see it as being similar to the accent that Vibe had in those early JLD issues. He loses it after like three issues faking it. But she is given her civilian name here. I don't know if she'd been given a civilian name before. So her being Hispanic or Latina is kind of brought out for the first time. And Fabian Niciesa is Hispanic or Latino. So you'd <laughs> maybe he might have some experience hearing that accent. Maybe not. I don't know his life experience. I don't know his family background, um, but it's just, it didn't sound like that. Right. I saw Rusty and Skids and I was like, wow, how irrelevant are they by this point? <laughs> I really, really liked them, even though they were kind of vanilla I just I thought they were cool whenever they were on the team mm-hmm. around the Exterminators era and before. Mm-hmm. And then she get they get kidnapped. And New Mutants' first mission was let's go save Rusty and Skids tomorrow. And <laughs> tomorrow never came. And now we're 25 issues into the series that started with 84 of the New Mutants. Anyways, uh, or 83 or whatever Liefeld's first issue was. Um, there was a Magnum PI re, uh, marathon on, so you know tomorrow, the next day, <laughs> we'll, go, we'll go get them. After that, after that, I was also gobsmacked when I realized that the Fireboy in Deadpool Two was a version of Rusty. I was like, yes. oh, that's that's right. <laughs> oh, okay, um, Magneto definitely made some clothing choices today. Mm-hmm. That robe is very um, Hugh Hefner meets I don't know. It's 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 got something going on, and he's got the carpet. Um, That's how chest. you know he's even more evil because in X Men number one he had a fancy space robe. Now he has a fancier space robe. Right. Oh, more more yeah. priestly. Right. Or and cultish. his eyes are glowing red. Is that with magnetism? Yes. Sure. Magnetism. I'm waiting for him to smack himself in the face with a board. <laughs> <laughs> so so somebody somewhere says heaven waits those who pray, and then later Cable is like. Because heaven also awaits those who pray. And I'm like, do you think when he made that pun, do you think Teresa knew what he was saying? (laughs) Did did, did he have to explain it off panel? Oh, got it. (laughs) What you so funny? They left out the panel where he turns around and says, yeah, but spelled the other way. (laughs) Right. Because that's exactly what I would do. I would make a joke and then immediately explain it for extra non-comedic effect. Right. Um, 
the like you said, Magneto was the worst kept secret. So they kept his face veiled, veiled, veiled all the way up until page 44 of this book. And it's not even a super big panel. It's a little bit of a dramatic pose, but I just didn't feel like there was much weight to the reveal. And um, there is a YouTube video out there that was made, gosh, 10 years ago. It's like a trailer for every Academy Award winning movie. Um, and it's very self-referential to, you know, stuff, but the phrase awkwardly working in the movie title is part of the video. And I feel like that's exactly what Magneto is doing there on page 45. Um, I thought Michael Douglas did it better. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, but yeah, this was, this was a great cable X-Force story. I loved cable coming back to the team. I loved the stuff between him and cannonball. I feel like whatever rough stuff he's gone through on his solo mission during Cable and the Cable miniseries and other stuff that's been going on before this has put a lot of his rough, you know, sort of roughneck parenting choices in perspective. And he realizes that he was not doing the right thing. And he apologizes for that. And it's genuine. And they believe him. And so this is a great comeback to him, uh, to the team for him. So as a Cable and X-Force issue, I really, really liked this. As a Magneto and Fatal Attractions issue was. Yeah. All right. What about you, Al? Oh, I really enjoyed this one. There was a lot of things. Uh, I think, right, you already mentioned it. All, all the stuff they had written on the walls. I hadn't really read the issues between uh, Executioner Song and this, so I don't know if that was a new thing or not. But I did like the fact, I did like all the little stuff they had. The Ouchmaker written on the gun. <laughs> the little Nuprin joke from Wayne's World written on the wall, one of the walls. You know, that was amusing. Um, I also liked, I have to believe that Boom Boom Hugging Cable was not a plan by Cannibal. He just took advantage of it. Because, yes, he is shown to be a much more capable leader than half the other ones that we're going to see in this whole series. But um, I have to believe that was her genuine. And I think Cable actually had no idea how to respond to that. He's, <laughs> he was ready for a fight or a punch or bombs or something, not a hug. Yeah. But also other things is I did like how we see here Cannonball and I mean, he didn't, Roberto really didn't get to talk, but like him and Roberto have a much different relationship with Magneto than the X-Men do. Right. He kind of joined them after being a vil- enemy of theirs. And they had a view of, you know, they the X-Men reviewed him as like with some suspicion. The, the New Mutants always had he was a teacher. They had some issues of him, but not as much as, you know, they never fought him before. He wasn't a villain, you know, their enemy. Right. So it's definitely more of a student coming back to high school to talk to his teacher afterwards, even if they maybe don't agree with him fully, having, you know, being able to talk as closer to equals now as opposed, but with respect, as opposed to the way the X-Men and Magneto deal with each other later on. So that was a nice touch. And finally, also, I did like, this was not a, how do you put it before, Grant? A Magog cable moment? Yeah. He's not going back afterwards to, because he wants vengeance or because he wants to kill Magneto before he does anything. The whole thing at the end is just him trying to save his friend. Yeah. You know, it has nothing to do with, Ven- you know, it's unlike maybe his appearance in Excalibur, which, is, you know, this has nothing to do with any bad ulterior motive. He's just trying to save his friend. And, and he does. Not being a, he's not being a jerk to the kids. He doesn't kill anybody. Exactly. Uh, this is my personal thing. I need to save my friend. I don't need any of you getting hurt. You're out. I'm going to deal with this. Right, like this. If this had been a Liefeld written issue after Exodus got knocked out, then Cable would have double tapped him in the head. <laughs> oh, he would have just blown up the whole ship. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, definitely. And finally, I am 
I am I did like Rusty and Skids too, particularly like Exterminators and stuff. So it is disappointing that they're here and then like, nope, let's get rid of them. Right. We'll just have them show up in background here and there until we kill Rusty off after Image of Apocalypse. You know? <laughs> there you go. All right, Cameron, where where are you sitting on X Force Twenty Five? Um, I enjoyed this one quite a bit as well. Um, I only have a couple of little things to add. One, a um, couple of silly things first. On on eleven page eleven on the Marvel Unlimited app, I don't know what is regular, uh, but Richter makes a Charlie's Angel pose that cracked me up pretty hard. <laughs> um, I don't remember that. Does does he always do the finger guns? That is that a thing he does at this era? I think so. I, I do remember it. That, that was did a, seem familiar. That was a Capullo I, thing where he always had his hands together to use his powers. Okay, I was trying to remember if he, because uh, I remember like the clapping. I remember. Yeah. But I couldn't remember the, anyway. But anyway, that with the long flowing hair and the it was uh, anyway that cracked <laughs> me up. And then a couple pages later, they have that zoomed in picture of the two fists together, uh, which made me think of the eighteen theme, which I enjoyed having stuck in my head for a good 20 minutes. Uh, <laughs> but it's good, you know, good times. Um, I was also going to talk about the robe briefly because I thought <laughs> what I liked about Magneto's robe, um, other than the the after hours element of it, um, but it had such a like cult vibe uh, mm-hmm. because I feel like Exodus is such a cult-like character and like the language he talks and so much of, so much of the way, at least in this issue and a little bit in the next one, but not that much. Um, Exodus's version of this is feels very culty, like come to the, you know, bringing you to the promised land. We're coming here. We're all going to live in this big uh, place all together and solve all the mutantum's problems. Um, it feels very much like a cult. And I thought him in the, the hood really, uh, really accentuated that idea that Magneto's creating a giant cult. He doesn't really lean into the cult element as we get into the next issues, obviously, but but in the first the first couple issues here, I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, interesting take on what what Magneto's doing up in the uh, up in space there. And just the name Acolytes really reinforces that vibe. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, exactly. It definitely gives that that real something bad's going to happen to all of these people. All right, well, Cameron, why don't you grade first, and we'll go back around. I'm going to go five out of six on this one. Okay. Oh me, yeah. Oh, I'm five for me too. Okay. What about you, John? Um. Not to bandwagon, but I'm thinking five. Uh, I think that the uh, non-crossover elements elevate the comic above a four. Okay. I'm going to go a very strong four. Um, I like Kapoor a lot. I feel like the art was maybe not as consistent because of the army of inkers. I maybe noticed that a little more. Um, And then I thought I agree that I love kind of Fabian's continually kind of softening and updating the cable mythos, but there was a lot of a lot in this issue. <laughs> and so th- some of that took me out a little bit, but I still enjoyed it overall. So it's just still a pretty strong four out of six clause. And Grant, back to you as the synopsizer. If it just on the plot and the art, I would go five, but the fact that Nicieza through dialogue does away with so many <laughs> stupid Liefeld subplots, like the whole deal with, Richter's dad and is Tyler or Cable's son or not. And then, you know, just clearing everything up, that bumps it full up to a six for me. I love this. Okay. Awesome. All right. Well, next up, we have Uncanny X-Men 304. Cameron, what is going on with this one? All right. Um, so this one was uh, written by Scott Lobdell. 
um, Pencilers, John Romita Jr., Jay Lee, Chris Sprouse, Brandon Peterson, Paul Smith, uh, Inkers, Dan Green, uh, Dan Panosian, Terry Austin, Tom Palmer, Keith Williams, Mike Thomas, colorist, uh, Chris Eliopoulos, letterer. Um, this this comic is math. It took me a long time to get through this. And take, <laughs> so, so many different things happening and so many so many words, right? Uh, uh, deeply Claremontian, and there's so much explanation and debate and stuff, which I loved it all. No, that's not a complaint. It's just uh, it took me a bit. So anyway, uh, my synopsis, I'm going to – I tried to make it short, but again, there's a whole lot of things that happen in this one. So, <clears throat> um, oh, cover-wise, I can't see the wraparound on this one either um, or the or the hologram. So the half that I see is, again, similar to the other ones. but It's, uh, it's very- super busy. <laughs> Yeah, it's a very standard, all of the X-Men running in one direction. So, um, all right. So this one, we we open up we open up in the submarine with the Acolytes. They're fighting each other uh, because they're not each other. They're fighting Fabian Cortez uh, because they find out about his, They had found out about his part in the destruction of Asteroid M and the, the uh, alleged death of Magneto and all that. Um, so they're in the middle of uh, beating up Cortez. Exodus shows up. Offering take all of them to Avalon, uh, essentially says that Magneto forgives Cortez and they should uh, they should too. Cortez then tries to attack Exodus anyway, and so he burns him up or something. It's not really clear what happens to Cortez, but either way, takes the acolytes onto Avalon. Uh, then we cut to a pretty intense scene of Charles Xavier staring in the mirror, doing some pretty serious self reflection before the burial of, of Ilyana Rasputin. Uh, who, of course, has recently died from what uh, – have they started calling it Legacy Virus yet? They've it's referred huge. to it as the Legacy of Strife. I don't think they've used the word Legacy Virus, have they? Okay. I didn't think so. At least not in these uh, issues. Yeah. yeah they, they call it Strife's Legacy, but I couldn't remember when we add the virus. But anyway. Um, so anyway, uh, sorry. Charles uh, Xavier is feeling like a failure. Lalandra sends a hologram to try to console him, but she doesn't do a very good job. Um, and he remains sad, pondering his aloneness. Uh, and then he starts looking at a screen. I, I guess are computer screens, but I'm hard to tell. But it says Magneto Protocols, which, of course, foreshadowing what's coming in the next issue, um, declaring he won't fail those that depend on him again. Um, then we get a really quick recap of the entire history of the X-Men and reflections <laughs> on how the enemies have have shifted away from um, just being bad guys to being uh genocidal towards humans so going back to what i talked about before on this kind of concept of genocide being pretty prevalent here um he declares magneto uh, magneto to be the uh, the greatest threat to face every living being on the planet earth it's a quote there um then we switch to magneto um talking about his inability to save his children as he refers to mutants um makes a comment about how the old magneto would have never spoken to his, himself but now he does which i thought was really weird um, because we get a lot of him talking to himself in this issue. <laughs> uh, but I guess that's something. But I feel like that's something he's always been prone to, but, but maybe not. Um, it, it explains what had happened to Magneto. I don't remember if that was revealed in earlier issues or if this is where they reveal exactly what happened to him. Uh, the details, um, I think this is the reveal of the details. Okay, that's what I was thinking. And so anyway, um, basically, Asteroid M, when it was... Uh, destroyed or on its way to destruction as it's falling towards earth chrome uh the acolyte chrome encases magneto in a uh some omnium some kind of metal i guess uh that helps him survive the crash but chrome dies uh allowing magneto to to survive 
Then we get to a, a pretty amazing flashback where we it clearly switches to Jay Lee and the penciling here, um, where we get uh, talking about Magneto long before he was Magneto when he was just Eric Lyncher, um, holding the dead uh, body of his daughter Anya, talking about his experience surviving concentration camps, how hepatitis had delayed the manifestation of his powers until adulthood, which I didn't remember that, but I guess that's the thing. Um, that his power so anyway his powers emerge when he's not able to rescue his daughter here and he ends up killing this whole village his wife gets scared and run away and so he's left completely hopeless with no no direction until soldiers start hunting him down because he destroyed a whole village um and then he turns on them and uses his powers deliberately for the first time um killing causing forcing one soldier to kill all the other soldiers and then to kill himself uh, in a pretty intense Pretty intense flashback. Um, jumps back to the present where he talks about how um, he doesn't want to do this. He's talking to Charles, even though Charles isn't there. So he doesn't want to, but he has to. X-Men are too weak to do what must be done. Um, and then the comic talks about how they're two sides of the same coin, both convinced that they're mutant kind's only hope, uh, which I thought was well stated. Then we jump to the X-Mansion where Kitty has the munchies and complains about how there's no food in the <laughs> I thought that was a funny moment of levity there. Um, and then Kitty and Storm discuss the death of Ileana as well. Um, then they fly through the sky talking about what Kitty asking if things would be better if they were all just normal. Uh, Storm says no uh, and talks about genetic birthrights and, and uh, their responsibilities and all that. Um, Kitty then stumbles onto a steeled up Colossus, burning all of his paintings. She tries to stop him, reminding him uh, of the life that his paintings bring. Colossus uh, however, is trending hard towards nihilism, talking about uh, <laughs> life Life without family uh, is uh, without meaning, basically. And so um, a pretty dark and tells her she can take the paintings. And so she takes one and runs away. Um, then we get to the funeral service, which is uh, big and elaborate and, and I thought very well done. Um, we get some love between the characters. We get some frustration between the characters. Uh, we get a pretty uh, intense exchange between Colossus and Professor X, where he he says, quote, you and your dream failed me uh, and Ileana failed Ileana as well. Um, then Magneto shows up in the middle of the funeral to take advantage of the situation and explain why um, explain why his way is better than Charles. And it offers them real salvation in Avalon. The Nexus and the Acolytes show up. Wolverine's ready to fight. Uh, Scott says, hold on. And then Magneto forces Logan's claws back into his hands hardcore, um, and explains why that he is now way more powerful than he'd ever been before uh, and then takes Charles wheelchair apart which I thought was pretty funny um, and then freezes everyone uh, by controlling the iron in their blood which I believe is the first time he does that thing as well um, Magneto then talks a lot of course this is, this is where we get into tremendous amounts of talking back and forth um, that he, he doesn't he, he's not there to fight but he wants everyone to give him complete loyalty to his idea uh, Quicksilver tells his father about the attack on the hospice, uh, attempting to, I guess, tell, show Magneto the, the darkness of the, the acolytes. But Magneto says, uh, quote, is it a crime to put an animal out of its misery, uh, which really raises the, the stakes of Magneto's efforts as he's moving closer to the, uh, the Nazi eugenics that, that led to his whole backstory in the first place. Um, Magneto says he would have supported those attacks, uh, but since they did him he kills because uh, they thought he was dead so they couldn't have asked him but you know uh then magneto goes full megalomaniac um and as nightcrawler says 
has bought into his role as savior. Uh, he then gives a big you're either with me or against me speech, <clears throat> then brings Avalon itself into Earth's atmosphere, causing all kinds of electromagnetic magnetic havoc across the planet, according to the comic there. Um, still trying to sell the X-Men on his dictatorship, he declares Charles' dream a failure. Uh, Charles pleases Magneto to see that he's nothing new and he's only emulating the Nazis that killed his family. Uh, Magneto gets pretty mad about that, mentions strife and the virus, and once again declares uh, his way is the only way to save mutants. Uh, suddenly, Bishop starts inadvertently charging up due to the energy Magneto was using to keep him still. Then he blasts Magneto and frees everyone. Magneto continues his hard sell, though. Uh, Rogue says, don't blame humans for Strife's legacy. Magneto doesn't care. Uh, she then tries to kiss him to steal his power, but he's so powerful. Uh, even if she took some of his power, he still had so much, according to him, and it couldn't do any damage. Um, then Bishop charges up from everyone, blasts Magneto again, and then we get into another big fight, um, talking about the methods, uh, what divides them. Uh, Jean and Storm, meanwhile, are trying to keep Avalon from causing more damage. <coughs> then we get the big betrayal where Colossus punches Bishop in the back, saves Magneto, and then joins the Acolytes. Uh, Magneto then rubs it in Charles' face that Colossus went with him. Uh, we get more vision talk back and forth. Charles refuses to give up on Magneto, that the old Magneto that believed in his vision. Charles blames Magneto's weakness and bitterness for his turn rather than strength. Charles then takes over Magneto's mind, uh, showing the, the extent of Charles' power, which it says he was always hesitant to show. As Magneto and Avalon out into outer space, Angel then catches Charles and the X-Men stand strong. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, guys. No, no, that's fine. So, gen general thoughts, Cameron, before we go around the room. Um, overall, I mean, there's so much in here, but it's incredible. I thought uh, overall, I, I just, I really liked all the ways they do this. I mean, they could have probably scaled down some of the exposition because um, Magneto is talking about his vision over and over and over and over again. Uh, but you know, it, it's a it's a pretty powerful sell, and I think tying all this into the funeral and the death of Ileana, um, it all makes all of this feel really big. And then, of course, uh, Colossus's betrayal is um, one that I remember being pretty shocking in the moment, uh, and even still reading this, uh, even though I knew it was coming, obviously, it still feels like, oh, I can't believe you did that, uh, even, in this, uh, even in this moment. And I think that's all the thoughts I have. <laughs> okay. Um, let's go John. Okay. So there's a lot of comic here. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that struck me just going into that is that the acolytes are not where we left them because of this, you know, structure of this crossover, there's plot happening to characters that we're not privy to. So after they left, you know, the X factor issue, they've had other stuff happening before they show up here. Um, poor Ilyana. I mean, I knew when I was reading through these issues and the issues surrounding them a year or two back, I knew it was coming because Ilyana dying is just one of those things you know about if you're into X-Men lore at all. Right. But still, um, and now they're having the computer for it, and it was just, you know, kind of hard. I did like that we got a little bit of glimpses of Kitty Pride and how she was reacting to Ilyana's death. I really, really wish we had gotten more of that in the actual Ilyana issue, but that's not for this podcast. Right. Um, I thought we got a nice view inside Xavier for his opening scenes. Um, just, you know, the where his mindset is right now. And I didn't remember that it was going to go as dark as it eventually goes, but 
you certainly feel justified from his perspective as the story moves along. Um, okay, so Magneto's thinking in order to be safe from humans, let's live in a space station. <laughs> and I'm torn between understanding the desire to completely separate yourself and also this is so extreme. There's no Dunkin' Donuts up here. There's no Publix. <laughs> Where are you going to get your milk? You right. know? And you're up in space. How? Now, we find out that Magneto can fly in space. I don't know how he breathes. But, <laughs> you know, evidently if he needs milk or donuts, he can just go get them. It just takes a really long time because, you know, it takes a long time to get Earth. Anyways. Um, oh, the milk-making mutant was the first one he recruited. What's that? The milk-making <laughs> mutant was the first one he recruited. That's yeah. Exodus's second mutation, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> the milk makes an ex- exodus from its... <laughs> okay, anyway. Um, yeah. When we go into the history of Magneto and see him holding his daughter, since we've just come out of the thoughts about Xavier and Ilyana, I kind of wanted that to be Magneto's response to the loss of Ilyana because he was her mentor. And I get that they're right. making a parallel between that loss and his daughter's loss. It's just, that was my reaction to it at the moment. Um, page 24 was the, yeah, the Katie reaction. You'd still be in Kenya and Ilyana. My best friend would still be alive. We need more of that. Yeah. It really does suck to be Colossus. I mean, I'm not sure if it's join Magneto level of suck, but it's pretty high on the suck meter. Um, Losing every single member of your family in the space of a few weeks or months. Right. This is this is not good. And I'm glad that whenever Lubdell uses his head wound as an excuse for his plot, he doesn't end up reversing any of that. Like, that's not the core. He's honestly, legitimately grieving and having a hard time making self-beneficial decisions. Um, you ever read Banshee in these comics and think about what he looked like in his first appearance? Because <laughs> I do. And hey, look, yeah. it's Wolverine. Yeah. You know, on the podcast that goes snicked, I just think it's important to remember to realize that Wolverine finally comes in. Right. On page 31 at the funeral group shot. He has like two lines in this issue and they hint at what's going to happen, actually. A little um, bit. But. Yeah. So let's see. When Magneto is going down the list of X teams, I'm hearing it as kind of mocking. Like, um, let's see it. Oh, yeah. And you X Men, X Force, X Factor, <laughs> responding in ever more desperate kind. How fractured they come. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> let's see. What was it? 37, the last bit of 37. Um, there's some bit with Magneto being telepathic which every Silver Age X-Men reader knows is Magneto is telepathic. It's one of his things in the early issues. So they just kind of bring that out here a little bit. That, well, because he's using his electromagnetic powers to jam her psionic powers. So right. I kind of liked that. And also it kind of feels like if psionic powers and telepathy are electromagnetic in nature, then that explains how he was able to do that in those first few issues of X-Men. Yeah. Um. I thought it was a bold revelation that while Magneto was allegedly on the right road, he was also stealing Shi'ar tech from the mansion <laughs> for his own purposes. Like that was, that was a dark maneuver on Magneto's part. Um, page 44 Colossus perks up whenever he talks about Ilyana is going to be 
the first of scores of innocent victims to die from this virus. Colossus is like, oh, we can't let that happen. Um, also, Jubilee refers to every to to um, the place is going to be a, a burnt microwave burrito or whatever. And Magneto <laughs> feels the need to correct the metaphor. <laughs> Not a burrito. No, actually, I'm actually. It'll be nothing more than a smoldering crater. Like, um, right. I do have issues with Magneto's logic, even though he over-explains it for 17 word bubbles. Humans kill mutants. Strife's legacy virus kills mutants. So he's going to hold mutants responsible for Strife's legacy virus. I just, I have problems with that. I don't think that that's reasonable. I don't think it's logical. I don't think it's rational. It's um, an excuse. Yeah, it's definitely an excuse. They're two separate threats coming at you. You should be fighting them separately on separate fronts. Um, Rogue tries to kill Magneto. I was sorry, kiss Magneto and drain his power. Um, this is often her go-to for taking someone's power, and I realize that she and Magneto have a history, which maybe justifies a little bit, but right. we've seen her do this on a number of occasions. She kisses people to take their powers. Makes me wonder if she snogged Carol Danvers way back in the day. <laughs> maybe. Um, but this was this was the master of magnetism and monologuing at his yeah. fullest effect. <laughs> and yep. it was really long to get through <laughs> yeah but it was also a really really solid chapter and not quite the highest point but for just the sheer drama of it a uh, pretty high point for me so far all right um thanks john uh, let's go with grant next okay um yeah i i thought the story felt epic um, especially around the funeral and all that. But man, the artistic switches were so boring yeah. that it took me out. The Jay Lee switch made sense because it was a flashback and it was a very dark flashback. But the switches with uh, Chris Sprouse and Paul Smith made no sense. And Brandon Peterson, like I really like the JRJR pages. I especially like reading JRJR where he still did a good job. <laughs> I'm reading his like latter day Superman stuff right now. And it's a hard read to get through, but like his stuff looks amazing and everything is just like bombastic and just widescreen movie explosion. But like, like I want, I kind of want to know which, I wish I could tell which anchor was matched up with which penciler because like Peterson stuff looks better than I'm used to seeing. Like I thought it was Jim Lee for a minute, that double page splash when Magneto shows up. I thought that man came. Yeah, that looked really good. And usually Peterson stuff is leaves me kind of cold. But man, to, Paul Smith stuff looked rough. Somebody inked that poorly, and I don't know what's going on with Chris Sprouse's work. His Magneto's got like some googly eyes under that helmet. <laughs> so, um, unfortunately, that kind of I'm like I I can take or leave uh, Lobdell a lot, um, discounting you know not even factoring in his personal stuff. Um, I can take a leave of his writing in the 90s, but it it was just okay for me because of the uh, the artistic switches. And I know they're they're I think they're on all these books they're trying to play catch up. Right. All right. Alan, what about you? All right. Well, first of all, it's actually kind of funny. I'm a little bit reversed with you on the art because I was not as big a fan of Ramirez Jr.'s art at this point. So I definitely enjoyed some of the other art more than that one. So it's kind of funny. Um, story wise, it yeah. Um, not counting, like you said, his, pers- his issue, you know, personal issues. 
But yeah, I actually thought Lobdell did a pretty good job here, especially with the uh, the personal stuff. And I actually noticed around this time there were a few downtime issues he's done that were actually I remember being pretty good. Like there's like a Thanksgiving issue coming up in a few a uh, few issues, like 308 or 310, that I thought was pretty good. So he's act- so I thought he did pretty good with the uh, the downtime stuff and the people talking before the big fight. Uh, the whole part, by the way, of Wolverine's actual since this is a Wolverine podcast, the whole part <laughs> of the lines when Wolverine actually gets to talk and the talk to him. Definitely something to note for next issue. And it's definitely something I wish Cyclops would have said to the professor when he says, Wolverine, you are like the last person I want to go up against Magneto. Right. That's something right. that should be said again next in X-Men 25. Just a hint <laughs> of what I'm going to be talking about when we get to X-Men 25. Right. They should have broken the fourth wall and said, hey, go read X-Force 25 and see what happened to Cable. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the Cable thing was definitely foreshadowing, I feel right, yeah. like. Although, to be fair, I would think at this point, since Colossus hadn't left yet, no, left him yet, I would think actually that would be the last person. Right. Wolverine's number two. <laughs> but I think Colossus is the last person you want to go up against Magneto at this, you know, right then and there. It's like, no, 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 wait, wait you're number two. But Colossus, you stay in the back, too. You stay far away. Go home. Um, what else was I going to say? Um, I enjoyed the actual, actually, now we actually got Jay Lee here. I mean, with the exception of the shirtless, you know, the shirtless Magneto page needed a little bit of work. But the other pages I thought were really good and pretty haunting and almost like nightmarish, which is probably the way he remembers what happened to his right. daughter. But otherwise, I thought it was a decently solid funeral and somewhat of a fight issue. And it wasn't even a full fight issue. I mean, the fight doesn't happen until like three-fourths of the way through. So, and yeah, he, I, I kind of, I got a bit more of a threat in this one than I did in the other one. And in the next issue, actually. Even, you know, probably because it was also had all the acolytes there, too. Oh, and sorry, Grant, I guess we're done with Sinyaka now. <laughs> yeah. for, for a little while anyway yeah goes gone full on full belief not just full belief in his press but just whatever he wants to do i mean he's gone full on tyrant here too i mean i truly approve of everything they did but just be, they didn't get my approval just because i was dead so i'm gonna kill one of them i mean it's like okay so i guess you would have been fine if all your acolytes just stood around and did nothing i'm sure you would have killed them for that too i mean that's some serious <laughs> micromanaging yeah. Like, you know. Uh oh. Hello. Anybody still here? Oh, okay. Yeah, he's getting full on closer to like Silver Age Magneto than ever before, I think. Right. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, that's it for this one. I mean, yeah, okay. not much to think about it. It was pretty good. Yeah. Oh, and I really pretty much would agree with what a lot of you guys have said as far as like the content and the emotional heft. Um, is definitely a, a is a busy issue, but it's a weighty issue. Um. So, yeah, um, I do come with just kind of funny things. I like that uh, Colossus's portrait of Wolverine was shirtless. So I just imagine, you know, want to be a fly on a wall in that, that modeling session. Um, and then uh, I like the kind of nod to upcoming. So Bishop kind of talks about some of Banshee's, you know, more admirable traits, kind of getting a sneak peek of where his character is going for Generation X, where he'll actually be like a teacher. Um and I also like when Banshee talks about the future. You know, like, hey, I know your future is really dark, but it's not my future. And the only thing that bothers me about that scene is I don't mind, like, if Banshee's already taken off and he's kind of gliding, I don't mind having him talk. I don't like when they have him talk while he's taking off. Because, like, how is, he, how is he screaming and talking at the same time? <laughs> but um, Carefully. Yeah, very carefully, <laughs> right? It's very, very, uh, yeah. Yeah, and things he can do with that mouth, right? Um, but, um... <laughs> Hello! <laughs> but, yeah, uh, obviously, you know, 
Magneto not only controlling Wolverine, but actually pulling his claws back into his arm. I have to imagine being in Wolverine's head space on the podcast, I guess, Nick, like, no one's ever done this to me before. <laughs> I mean, we did have that one. Actually, it's kind of a callback to a very early story when Wolverine fought Magneto and was not able to stab him, right? So kind of a, um, a callback to that. Uh, and the only thing I thought, while the, the funeral scene was very endearing, very sweet, Colossus is like 12 feet tall. Um, <laughs> so there's there's that. But no, I thought it was, I kind of leaned more towards Grant with the art. Uh, some of the inconsistencies were a little jarring for me. Um, the Jay Lee one was awesome because it it felt the most like emotionally and artistically were on the same page. Uh, probably closely followed by the John Romita Jr. stuff. Um, but I think a really good issue with some maybe visual problems. Uh, I'm going to give it four out of six claws, and we'll go back around the table back to Cameron. So I guess um, Al and Grant, one of y'all, I forget who was right before me. <laughs> oh, I think uh, I was right before you. Okay. So, Al, what'd you give on Candy 304? Um, I enjoyed this almost as much as the X-Force, so I'm going to give this... I mean, the art... My main issue with the art was the fact that... Mostly, though, was the fact of the jumps, too, from artist to artist sometimes, with the exception right. of going to Jay Lee and from Jay Lee, because at least that makes sense. Right. But otherwise, though, despite that little issue, I'm still enjoyed it pretty much, so I'm going to give this one a five still. Okay, awesome. What about you, Grant? Um, man, I'm somewhere between a three and a four on this one. I will I'll be charitable and give it a four. This, the <laughs> art really threw me off. Oh, and, and just going back to your, your Wolverine portrait, you know when he posted that, he said, paint me like you do your French girls, bub. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. But, um, sorry, um, unfortunately, though, I, I am afraid I have to bounce because I have some family stuff I have to go do. Okay. Um, and I hate to leave before we get to the, the high point of the crossover. But, yeah, but that's it. So I, right. I can go. Understood, man. All right, love Grant, you guys. Thank you, thank you very much for for hanging out with us, and uh, yeah, I appreciate it. All right, I'll see you around. Bye. All right, bye guys. Bye. Okay, um, John, when did you grade three hundred four? As a chapter in the crossover, this is my favorite so far. Uh, so this is definitely an easy five for me. Okay. Well, you, Cameron, I don't, I don't I don't know what oh, art sorry. is. What, yeah. Um, I I think five for me too. I I I think the art. The the jarringness, other than the Jay Lee, like everyone said this already, but I think I would have given it a six just on the story itself. But again, the inconsistent the art took me out of it a little bit. So a very strong five, possibly a soft six, but I'll stick with five because okay. no one else gave it a six. <laughs> All right. The peer pressure is real. Okay. Well, that's going to take us to X Men 25. Wait, is that me? I think so. I was not prepared. Um, <laughs> so. Getting my getting my synopsis here. Okay, X Men twenty five. Before Magneto grinds things to a stop, sis, better bring y'all this flashy synopsis. <laughs> uh, the cover has Wolverine standing over. I'm sorry, Magneto standing over Wolverine's not quite dead body. He's doing some sort of glowy hoozy watches, but of course they're not going to give it away on the cover. And all the X Men are standing there going, "What?" Including um, Xavier in his walking clothes. Right. Um, all right. So if you're excited because the big chapter of Fatal Attractions 
is going to feature the X-Men going to Mexico and facing off with El Tigre. I'm sorry to disappoint you. That was <laughs> the X-Men 25 from 1966. Um, we have traveled almost 30 years and lost a definite article since then. And besides, that story was kind of terrible, so we're all better yeah. off. Yeah. Um, so as we open, everyone's afraid. Reagan's afraid. Yeltsin's afraid. Even Fury is afraid. So they turn on the shield like the beginning of Highlander 2, a shield to keep Magneto from reentering Earth's atmosphere. Magneto decides this is rude, and he cuts a <laughs> slice through the planet's EM field, which knocks out all electrical power systems throughout the globe. All of them, all the power system, except the X-Men's because they have a conference and their lights and holograms are totally still working because alien tech is totally radical. And they talk about how with all the planes, <laughs> trains, automobiles and hospitals, no power means thousands of deaths have just happened. So Chuck says it's time to fight to win. Scott, Hank and Gene ruminate on the dark direction things are going while Xavier gets his walking legs on. His plan involves three teams. Wolverine and Gambit for stealth, Gene and Xavier on mental offense, and Quicksilver and Rogue on speed and strength, which aren't really the same thing, so they're really basically two solo jobs, but you know, whatever. They're on the same panel. Um, he's keeping things streamlined with just six X-Men, because he knows this may be a one-way attack, which doesn't sit well with the X-Men as a whole. But Xavier speechifies and does it anyway. <laughs> Since Magneto has Shi'ar tech up on Avalon, his uh, his, his you know, floating space center, Xavier uses his Shi'ar tech protocols to override the security and teleport the team onto the station. Now, Colossus is on security watch. He sees them enter and he doesn't raise the alarm, which makes him go, hmm. The first obstacle the team meets is Rusty and Skids. And they don't matter. So, um, well, Gene <laughs> does try to talk to them, but Xavier just shuts them down, which Gene Gray is definitely judgy about. Quicksilver speeds to a terminal and inserts a disc, probably one of them newfangled CD-ROM jobs, and he <laughs> speeds back to the team. Xavier targets all the acolytes with the computer, teleports them to the escape pods, and jettisons them from the station, leaving only Magneto aboard. And by this time, Magneto has definitely noticed there are shenanigans afoot at the Circle K, so he attacks. And the X-Men fight back, um, the four distracting him physically while Gene and Xavier hit him psychically. Xavier's tactic is to make Magneto face his pain. Jean does not like this. She is not on board with this maneuver. So whenever the team is fighting him and Wolverine moves in for the death blow, she severs the mind link. And now that Magnus has his faculties back, he can respond to Wolverine's attack. And his response begins with a small tug, an almost gentle pull, a harder yank. Than a wrenching tear. Wolverine doesn't scream. Indeed, he doesn't even have time as the adamantium, which long ago was bonded to his very bones, is destabilized on a molecular level, ripped from its moorings and forced through his open wounds, erupting outward like water bursting through a dam. That was from the comic. I had to get the description because it's kind of epic. It's great. It, of all the things this podcast has covered, this is one of the highlight epic scenes. Yeah. As Logan falls, the stillness of pure horror surrounds the killing ground, broken only by the voice of one person who has, since the day they first met, 
perhaps always will love him. It's Scott Summers. He loves Logan. <laughs> no, it's Jean Grey. She shouts Logan's name as Logan lays there. The metal has hardened to long, slender blobs protruding from the flesh of his muscles and skin. Jean is using all of her powers to hold him together in body and mind while Xavier turns all his psionic might on Magneto, erasing his mind of hatred, of ego, of all the nightmares. Xavier takes Magneto's mind from him and both men collapse. Colossus is there. He shows up. He's like, okay, I I let y'all on here, but I really can't let you stay. He tells the X-Men that the teleportation system was damaged in the fight, but that Bishop is on his way to get them. He's going to stay behind and try to do for Magneto what he could not do for Ilyana, which is restore him to health. And that is the end of X-Men 25. Um, I forgot to give any credits whatsoever. I think they're on the last page. Um, No, they're not. I don't know where they are, Um, but they're in the book somewhere. Um, flipping, flipping, flipping. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm going to find Oh, there they are. Okay, so join Fabian Nicieza, writer, Andy Kubert, penciler, hey. Matt Ryan, inker, Bill Oakley, letterer, Joe Rosas, colorist, Bob Harris, editor, Tom DeFalco, editor-in-chief, and proudly presenting the 25th issue of X-Men, Dreams Fade, dedicated to Stan and Jack, Roy and Neil, Len and Dave, Chris and John, to all those who have come before us and all those who will come in the next 30 years. So is it my turn to start? Yeah, go for it. Magneto, humanity is literally leaving you alone. They just closed (laughs) and locked the door to keep out a threat. What are you doing? (laughs) And how are you breathing in space? I do not know. Um... I love how the credits jumped from Stan and Jack to Roy and Neil and completely ignore <laughs> the nadir of X-Men comics from roughly issue 15 to issue 50. <laughs> there are some decent stories in there, but that is a lot of rough going as yeah. we found on Make Ours Marvel. Um, but you get that awesome Starenko Polaris cover on 50 Neil Adams on the inside and things change after that. Mm-hmm. Um, to be fair, John, they're also ignoring any artists that worked on it after John Byrne up until now. <laughs> so that's even a longer stretch that they're ignoring. Fair. Who are you? Absolutely Jr., fair. Paul Smith, um, right. Mark Silvestri. Well, right. that probably pissed the Mark Silvestri at this point. So like, yeah, screw you, Mark Silvestri, Jim Lee. You guys can go yeah. to hell. We don't care about y'all. Uh, well, they they they've already abandoned the boat to image now at this point, right? Yeah. So you know, well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. They're, they're probably they're covered on all the pouches. That's why yes. those guys are you know being ignored completely. Those two, which I'm contemplating a revival of, but we'll see nice. how that. Um, page eighteen. Uh, Scott and Jean are facing off with Xavier. What Jean is trying to say, sir, is that with the ability to walk, you've never really been much of a battlefield operative, and it's like, stay home, Dad. You're old, <laughs> but. <laughs> But also some foreshadowing is what was the one thing he did when he was in the field was mind wipe everybody. Mm. And that's what he does. <laughs> that so. is an excellent point. Lob, you are not a mutant. Go home. <laughs> right. On the um, Star Trek teleporter pad, when the whole team is assembled, one, where is Quicksilver? And two, <laughs> when did Xavier start using the European name for the last letter of the alphabet? Override sequence Z one zero one zero zero Z. It's like you're not you're not British. Stop that. <laughs> uh, 
page 25, I thought it was an interesting move on Colossus's part to let them pass. I thought maybe in the moment that he was um, apparently not fully on board with the enemy's tactics. Um, I think it was more, he's totally on board with the enemy right now, but he's also got a soft spot for the X-Men and didn't want to be the one to stop them. Right. Uh, and then whenever Xavier says, we've got somebody helping us, I was like, oh, is that Colossus? But I don't think Xavier was using Colossus. I think he was taking more taking advantage of the fact that Colossus let this happen. Right. Or maybe he stuck his finger in Colossus's brain and, and made it happen. Um, page 37. There's a lot going on here. I didn't really have specific comments on a lot of it, but there is so much drama going on. Um, Magneto is facing off with Quicksilver. And he's like, out of all of them, you have the audacity to confront me, Pietro. My son, how sharper than a serpent's tooth is your betrayal. And I'm like, Magni, <laughs> it is not like you love him or anything. <laughs> you weren't recently... a good dad. I mean, you kind of have this coming. <laughs> right. Now, I haven't read the, like, Vision and Scarlet Witch issues where, like, is revealed, or Avengers West Coast, or whenever it was, and it's revealed that he's their father. So maybe there's some drama and connection there that, like, ties this a little bit closer, but... I've recently reread the Silver Age story where Pietro and Wanda come back to Magneto after being on the Avengers for so long. And it was strictly because of manipulation and deceit on Magneto's part. Right. And I realize the character has moved on there, but those things happen in these people's lives. Um, okay, so Wolverine does this big mortal wound to Magneto, which takes him out of the physical <laughs> fight. There is no wound on Magneto. There is only his shirt being torn. This yeah. is not the cartoon. There should be some scratches. <laughs> at, least yeah. scr at least the scratch. <laughs> right? Doesn't even have to be like super gory, but like three black lines across his chest would be great. But no, you just have shirt shreds that vaguely resemble slashes. Um, with Wolverine, having your insides on the outside is definitely bad. Yeah. I think um, and yeah, Xavier... Xavier is full on kill mode in this. He is going to take this man down. He ends up doing all but at the end of the issue. Cause of course you've got to have a, 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 an out for future right. Magneto stories and where they're going right. with the storyline for him. But <laughs> he goes into the story ready to end this. I'm sorry. There was some talking. I didn't hear what's up. Oh, we were making uh, little we comments. Just, yeah. We were coughing about future stories. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> see. Okay. So y'all stopped reading shortly after this or before this, my nineties reading project, I left off right after this. So I don't oh, really okay. know explicitly what happens between this and say astonishing. Okay. Nice. That's a really big gap. I know, but I don't know what happens. Um, and yeah, huge moment for Wolverine. Um, it's, it's one of the most iconic moments of his entire story career, um, coupled with, you know, him seeing his claws for the first time next issue. I feel like these are really, really, really big deals in his development and, um, the, the pain and the agony and everything is definitely well conveyed here. Uh, this is to me, the high mark of the story. Yeah, me too. And an honest question, not just playing the, oh, I'm a Wolverine podcast, so let's make it all about Wolverine. But, I mean, this story in general, putting this in the context of a 30th anniversary celebration, um, I mean, up to this point, I know there's gonna be, there, there'll, be, there'll be stories that come afterwards, but, I mean, this is like Dark Phoenix Saga almost big, right? I mean, 
when you look at the consequences of this story, obviously the the huge horror that Wolverine goes through, having his adamantium removed, not knowing immediately how that's going to impact him, and, and obviously Larry Hammond will get to do some really cool things with that as he charges through the stories. But um, I mean, what Xavier does to Magneto, like that's that's Batman finally killing the Joker, right? I mean, that's really big stuff. Um, really epic, really kind of. I can't imagine. I was trying to put myself in the headspace of reading this for the first time back in '93. There's just no way, even an issue before, you could have convinced me that's what was going to happen. Like, there's genuine like twists and surprises, and and people pushing the limits of their characterization in a way that is is realistic. It doesn't like, oh, that's not Xavier. No, it feels like Xavier, but it feels like an extreme version. And I, I don't know, to me, this really delivered on just the bigness and just kind of the shockingness of what you would want in a big anniversary special to be. I mean, I put this up there with one of the bigger issues of X-Men history, and, and I, I don't think it's an unfair comparison. Um, two last thoughts, one that I forgot to say and one to piggyback on what you said. Um, you know how you hear about events and stories, but before you read them, you just have like have a mental impression? So hearing that Magneto pulled wolverine's adamantium skeleton out of him i had this image of him like somehow somehow slooping it out but then holding it up like still intact like it's oh, wolverine no. shaped metal <laughs> casing like like a terminator skeleton maybe yeah. so whenever right. i actually read this which for me the first time was like i said a year or two ago uh read this for the first time it was coming out in like the uzi you know splorps um that was a very very big surprise and um oh yeah i feel like what Hama has been doing with Wolverine for the last year or two before this, even though this is not his story in X-Men 25, I feel like it is a great trigger to just continue to fuel the turmoil and mental anguish he's been going through. And, right. you know, the whole uh, covered up memories and everything else, bringing up this whole thing. Where did my skeleton come from? Where did my claws come from? That we're going to talk about next issue. Yeah, it was, it was, it was cool. I'm done. All right. Uh, Cameron, just kind of general thoughts on this one. Um, I agree with the, uh, the, the stakes this raising the stakes so high. Um, I thought that, uh, the fact that, uh, Ben Grimm was smoking a cigar in a bubble bath was a funny little touch. <laughs> on the beginning yeah. there or he stopped to light it out of the bathtub. So, but it looks about half smoke. So anyway, um, I also thought the, um, when Magneto when Magneto hits the, uh, the the field or whatever, I thought it was interesting that the stakes of how they talked about thousands of people dying from his attack on that, which I thought was really interesting. Thinking about like the the purpose of this is here to protect everyone from him, um, and then he attacks it, and of course thousands of people die. Or they say hundreds, maybe thousands. So, but either way, you know the the numbers of of death. You know, we get into like superhero movies where you have these intense death t- death counts that are happening that realistically make no sense. This made me kind of think of that as far as how many people are affected by this one thing. Um, but I also thought I also thought it made sense. I, I think I think John, I think you had said how you know humanity is blocking him out, leaving him alone. Um, but I thought the attack made sense because his whole purpose of this. The the Avalon project, we're gonna call it that, right? This utopian vision he has of creating a, a safe haven for mutant kind. You know, the the Magneto protocols, it 
it's blocking him from fulfilling that mission. And and although like from the human perspective, right, they see him as, as only a threat, but like from his perspective, that that is as much a threat to him as it is to all of mutant kind, because his belief here is that only he can protect mutant kind. And so if they shut him out, that means it leaves mutants at the mercy of of uh of humanity and although it obviously doesn't work out for him but i thought it was uh i don't know i thought it made it i thought it made sense in that context of, of what he's what he's trying to accomplish with all this right it's almost like you know go, even going to the biblical imagery it's like the wolves are keeping the sheep from the shepherd and so that still feels like an aggression to him even though they just need his locking the doors He's like, well, no, you're not keeping me out. You're keeping me away from my people. Um, so, yeah, I think while it is definitely dramatic, you know, and and definitely probably some egotistical massaging, self-massaging for himself, you know, to be like, how dare they do this to me? I do think there is the point there that, like, he's trying to recruit and bring more mutants to Avalon, and now he can't get to them. And so the anger and backlash of that, I think, is, is just as much as trying to attack humanity at that point i also really like the idea that with xavier um they, they make the comment when before xavier does his big thing where he takes over magneto's brain and all that um they make the point about magneto was so quick to show them his full strength in a very like you know uh, foreign policy realism way of right he's like he has to always show everyone just how powerful he is at all times but then the idea that Xavier, with this kind of alternate soft power theory, that it's like, actually, I'm way more powerful. I just haven't shown you. Um, but now's the moment where I have to. And so he's going to go beyond what anyone thought Xavier could do and actually take over Magneto's mind and use his power against him. Uh, I thought it was, again, as you said, kind of the really delivering on, on how big a deal all of this is. Yeah. And, you know, altering who is arguably the most popular X-Men at the time. I mean, a fundamental change to Wolverine is, is going to be, I mean, it was, it was headlines in Wizard Magazine and, <laughs> you know, all that, all that stuff. Yeah. Al, yeah. what'd you, uh, what'd you think? Or Cameron, I'm sorry, Cameron, were you, do you have anything else you wanted to? No, no, I'm good. All right. Al, your overall thoughts on X-Men 25? All right. Well, first of all, um, some good stuff. Now the Magneto stuff, I actually said last about the last issue that he was like going back to his Silver Age thing. But actually here, he's even gone beyond that now. It's not just Silver Age posturing, I'm super villain. This is him. I am the god of magnetism, which <laughs> really explains all of his behavior with the whole. Because everything, yes, John, you're correct. I mean, they're just shutting the door. But basically to him, anything that's not bowing in reverence is an attack as far as he's. And with Quicksilver, it's like, yeah, I made your sister dance for my pleasure. At one point. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. I am always right. And therefore, everything I do is right. And everything I do is good. And the be- no, not good. The bestest thing ever. So shut up and do what I say at all times. So he's got, which also works for what happens to him here, because it's full on ego pride gone crazy. And so he pays for his hubris in this issue completely by losing everything. So that works. And, and everything. Now, I normally like Fabian stuff, but there is either he had some issues or editorial. I mean, the Jean, yeah, Jean basically, her job here is to just whine about everything Xavier says and does. I mean, now some of the stuff I'm not going <laughs> to say I agree with her, or at least to make sense that she would say that. But like, 
not just putting Rusty and Skids asleep. It's like, did you think you were just going to talk to every acolyte and have them agree to stand down? <laughs> I mean, do you not see a difference between that and punching somebody out? Like, right. same thing, except right. this is actually a lot nicer. No one's going to wake up with bruises or concussions. You know, he didn't change their minds. He didn't physically force them. He just put them to sleep. Right. That's like one of the most, that's like one of the least horrible things Xavier has done over the years of his powers. <laughs> Oh, you just put them to sleep? Did you mind wipe them? No. So they're going to remember. Oh, that's yeah. And their personality? Yeah, they're fine. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Good job. I'm impressed. Way to show restraint. Xavier. I mean, it's like, God. Like, Xavier whining. got the cookie that day. Yeah, it's like, right. stop whining about that one. I mean, you're just whining. But, and that brings my other point. Now, obviously, Xavier consulted with Marvel Editorial before making this team up. Because let's see, let's bring the guy, other guy we have with metal all over him to fight the master of magnetism. Right. I don't think it's a good idea to bring Wolverine. Oh, what, Bob? Oh, you have this big story of Wolverine? He has to go? Are you sure? Because it doesn't make sense. All right, all right. I mean, wouldn't it have made more sense for Magneto to have done this in issue three, Uncanny 304 since Wolverine was going to be there anyway? And this could have been partially retaliation and anger? No? You got to do it now? Okay, we got to do it now. Right, but we're going to not take the energy power energy power people. We we're going to comment on that, that we're not bringing the energy blasting people because space station. No, I, I'm pretty sure Gambit has energy powers. Uh, no, no, Bob, Bob, Bob Harris, Bob, Bob. I'm sure Gambit has energy powers. We probably shouldn't bring him. I mean, if we're going to do that, then let's bring Cyclops, too. What's the difference? Can we right. at least bring Bishop instead? I mean, his powers show, obviously, he's a threat against Magneto. Let's use him. No, Gambit's cool. All right, we got to bring Gambit. And it's the rule this, of cool. Yeah. And then bringing Gene, I mean, I'm sorry, there's two reasons. Out there. I mean, like for Gene, it's like, well, one, why not bring Psylocke instead? Psylocke is going to be way more into, yeah, let's shut him down. I'm with you. I think that's the point, though, right? Is she, she's supposed to be the moral compass that Xavier is leaving behind, right? But he brings I mean, Gene. And the tenets and the storytelling. Right, right. Yeah. So and he so should have the... brought Cyclops, Psylocke. Plus, if he's talking about this whole suicide thing and he's leaving the rest of them to go to go on who would he assume was going to be taking over it would make more sense for it to be scott gene and storm to take over because you bring them all over and scott has now the professor and gene ted he's going to be sad bucky's had kid scott for like the next 20 issues he's throwing it all in you know, it's like, <laughs> no, basically it's like storm you're taking over because scott's going to just be crying for the next 20 issues of the team and go work on a fishing well, if, if gene dies does scott be like oh i wonder what madeline's up to <laughs> Well, at this point, Madeline's dead, so. Yeah, true. But, I mean, like, so it would have made more sense also for the reason of him wanting to leave, you know, say, you guys, I want you guys to, you know, to lead in my absence because we're probably all going to die here. To have right. it be Scott, Gene, and Storm taking over, not just Scott and Storm, because that's probably, you should know by now, it's probably going to cripple Scott, you know, emotionally. So, while well, there's so many stuff, things cripple Scott emotionally, then just, you know. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> I, I'm just saying, like, there was, like, I'm just looking at these teams going, that, no, no, that's a bad choice, bad choice. Like, there was some, I mean, there was some cool stuff in here, but, like, there was a lot of things. I'm like, uh, uh, come on. It just, I just, I'm, I just couldn't get them out of my head as I'm reading them. Like, this makes no sense. Well, speaking of making no sense, Al, you remember the Secret Defenders episode we did? No. Oh, okay. Well, that's probably the best. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, we also did some bonus Fantastic Four issues. And to make a point, there's an editor's note in here that cannot be right. Because they talk about how, I guess, Andy Kubert didn't want to draw. He wanted to draw the Thing's face and not the metal helmet. And so he's like, well, this takes place before Wolverine cut the Thing's face off. But 
it can't because then you have to squeeze all that story between the blackout and when Wolverine loses his medal, which is not possible. But oh, oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, I mean, oh, unless gaff. was that supposed yep. to be with the bone claws? No. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna cut through the thing with bone claws. claws? That issue. Yeah, I don't know. He seems to be cutting through most things with bone claws. Why not? <laughs> yeah. it doesn't always seem to make a whole lot of difference you're you're right on that um <laughs> yeah but so that's my comments on the story i mean the magneto stuff was fine but some of the x-men stuff i was like Ugh. yeah well i like um i like that wolverine gets permission to be wolverine right uh, when they're talking about how the mission is gonna go and xavier's like you know we're, we're just gonna we're gonna turn a dark corner here so wolverine you know come along i think that's why he's probably bribed they probably forget the metal part because they, they need someone who's willing to to deal the uh the physical violence um but yeah uh, there's a nice scene between gambit and rogue uh, uh gambit gets to throw a car in a magneto's eye oh <laughs> uh, good day magneto that. calls wolverine his most visceral enemy most respected foe so that's kind of cool some cool Wolverine bits there before he endures the unimaginable. <laughs> so, uh, all right. Well, I think we could probably spend a whole lot more time on this one. But Al, what do you want to grade X Men Twenty Five? Um. Well, I mean, I did like the fact that the art was consistent. We only had one artist here at least, and that was good too. Yeah. Like I said, some of the stuff I liked. Uh, I don't want to do half again, but I'm going to two and a half. <laughs> Oh, wow. Okay. Those those issues bother me because it's in the whole story. It's not like it's a minor thing and it goes away. Wolverine being there is the whole issue, so. Right. All right. What about you, Cameron? Um, <laughs> well, I'm going to go five. Again, I I, I, I mean, I, I thought it was really good. I liked the stakes. I mean, I, I agree there's some silliness in the way um, the characters are paired and who comes. But, again, that's that's comics in the nineties. So I don't know. There's anything you can really do about that, except <laughs> good <know>. point. <laughs> you do have a point. I can't argue that. <laughs> so yeah, five, five for me. Okay. This is actually so far my favorite issue of the crossover. Uh, I love, I think this is like peak Andy Kubert for his nineties style. Um, so I really, really like the art and I just, the enormity of the story um and just the drama the impact the weight all of it uh, to me is uh it's six out of six claws for me i'm also going to live in six claws land this is the high point of the crossover it was uphill to here it's not sharply but slightly downhill from here right. um and this is what i came to see um i hear al's complaints yeah but it's one of those things that for me personally i if a story doesn't make sense to me, I will have a reaction very much like Al. But if I don't think about those things when I'm reading it, <laughs> it doesn't really bother me. And so <laughs> I just keep on it. going. You enjoyed um, it. Hey, at least you got more out of it than I did. So awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I'm I'm writing in six lane. Cool. Nice. I'm just being doing great this issue. That's right. Just, just. <laughs> So it has to be Gene in this one. A little, a little bit of regression on her character, right? Almost a 60s level nagging. <laughs> but yeah. But Professor, what does it mean? Um, so Wolverine... <laughs> yeah. Wolverine 75, uh, you know, in addition to changing the character for Wolverine, brings on who I 
would consider the Mount Rushmore Wolverine artist uh, welcoming to the Wolverine book, Adam Kubert, of course, written by Larry Hama. Uh, um, and a little bit of an army of inkers. We have Mark Farmer, Dan Green, and Mark Pennington, Pat Rousseau on the letters, Steve Butchelato on the colors. Um, our cover is just a grotesque Wolverine with fleshy spikes, um, still with metal claws, oddly, because uh, they're glinting in the, in the space light. Um, and then the other X-Men just looking in horror at his condition. The face and the, the wild Adam Kubert hair is, is, you know, compared to some of the covers we've had, this is a pretty good. So, all right. In this issue, uh, so after the atrocities in the last issue, the X-Men get on the Blackbird and, and head back into Orse Urban. And so on the way home, the X I, I, re- I just realized I said Ors Urbit instead of Ors. I, I heard it. I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ors can have an Urbit. Yep. Right? <laughs> it sure can. And does. Um, so anyway, on the uh, on the Blackbird ride home, the X-Men try to stabilize Wolverine after Magneto ripped out his adamantium. Xavier and Gene jump into his mind to deal with a mental trauma. But they have to jump in and out as the Blackbird re-enters Earth's atmosphere. The bumpy ride also wakes Logan up. Uh, the damage is so extensive his healing factor is struggling to keep up. Logan tells Gene to be happy and asks Xavier to look after Jubilee, so he's he's coming to terms that he may not survive the ride home. Um, and he concentrates on Logan while Gene telekinetically keeps the Blackbird together on re-entry, because unlike a Quinjet, it was not made for suborbital flight. So why did they take it? I don't know. Um, <laughs> Anyway, they have the, uh, oh, sorry, they lose the hatch, and Jean falls out. Logan hears her screaming, and that, that jets him back into reality and jets up to pull her back into the plane. Um, by the way, not really a way to synopsize it, but a lot of the visuals of inside his mind and kind of the torture of memories and stuff all just looks incredible. It's just really cool art. Um, anyway, uh, two weeks later, a Wolverine wants to prove himself in the danger room. He takes a beating and then pops out. Long dramatic pause. Bone claws. Um, so later he sits <laughs> and has bonding with Jubilee. He says the bone claws means he's always had them, but he can't remember them. So still giving a hammer time, lots of nuggets to play with. Um, he thought they were implants all along. Um, and he now has decided that he, he needs to pop them at least once a day to keep the skin from healing, kind of like pierced ears. Um, but it always hurts, which, of course, reminds me of the line in the X-Men movie where Rogue's like, does it hurt? He's like, every time. Um, he, talk, he tells Jubilee to stick with the X-Men, and then he decides to quit smoking. And that night, um, he leaves Jubilee a sweet letter and rides off into the night because he's got stuff to work through and is heading down a new path, and that path is away from the X-Men, at least for now. So, awesome art. I thought it was a pretty great story. Um, other than really talking about kind of the visuals, I don't know if I have a whole lot outside of what I just talked about, so I will go to John. So, I feel like the first act of this issue, they had more pages than story. Um, sure. that maybe they were had to pad things out just a bit because I was reading and I was like going, oh boy, how long is this going to go on? It kind of gave me a more negative emotions vibe <laughs> from that one episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, 
Logan insists on staying conscious during the pain because he's like, that's how I know my body's healing. I'm like, yes, Logan, it hurts because your body is healing. That doesn't mean you have to feel the pain. Your body will keep healing even if you don't feel it. <laughs> right. Um, they make a really big point about how the color, the um, the wounds heal, but then rip open again because the healing factor is confused. But the coloring is off on mm-hmm. those panels and throws off the entire point of the sequence. Um, so there's the there's the scene between Logan and Jean. And I'm just, what do y'all think? Do you think that the mutual attraction between them has really been that apparent? Because um, especially you, Jason, you've read all these more recently than I have. But I feel like it's only vaguely hinted at a case. Right. Yeah, they're definitely setting it more in stone. And even with the last issue where they say as gene always loved him um and, he, and if anything the most kind of concrete version of it was in the the backup tale when they redid the classic x-men right mm-hmm. um, on his first night of the mansion yeah right and so i mean i mean i don't want to beat a dead horse fans of the podcast no i don't i don't prefer to ship gene and logan i much prefer you know, Mariko or even Storm or, you know, several, several, several other, other partners before I would get down to Gene. But, um, no, I mean, they're definitely kind of putting a a flag on that hill (laughs) with, with these, this story, last couple issues of, of definitely solidifying that there was something there. And, you know, I I think the timing is also weird because we're only a couple months away from the wedding. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, I don't know if they're trying to add drama. I don't know if they're trying to give Gene the same struggle that Scott had, you know, because he just came out of that almost cheating with Psylocke thing. I was thinking about um, that, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if it's kind of a, well, Gene needs something to, to have a conflict over as well. They can both come to the marriage having just worked through their issues. I I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I de- and now's, now's the time for us to say for sure that they have unacted unrequited feelings for each other that they you know at least at, with logan on his uh, possible deathbed he's got to you know clear it out and say you know go ahead and move on <laughs> not that there's really anything specific or concrete to move on from it's, it's kind of odd and almost kind of um preposterous to say well since i'm dying i want you to be happy because i mean Story-wise, in order, I mean, what, a month or two ago? I'm trying to remember exactly what issue is when Scott proposed. So she's already engaged at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the Excalibur issue, they talk about how the wedding's coming up. It's kind of a surprise to Rachel. Sorry, Al. That's not about. Right. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It, it's weird. And I don't really love it, but... I mean, well, certainly the animated series runs with it, and the people who made yes. the movies liked the animated series so much yes. that they decided to use it. Um, Are you guys but, talking more of the Wolverine into Gene or Gene into Wolverine, or both? Wolverine's both. been into Gene since right. she was in the hospital after yeah. the feast. Yeah, because right. I'm thinking I was like thinking the... more about Gene's returned interest. Oh, okay, yeah. I just want to make sure I was on the same page. Because, yeah, I mean, Wolverine to Gene, I mean, I'm thinking the fir- of uh, uh, Inferno. When the teams first meet up, X-Factor and, X- and the X-Men, the first oh, yeah, thing he does yeah, is yeah, yeah. make out with her. He or smells the, her in the sewer. <laughs> yeah. Or also the, uh, or the issue of, uh, was it Uncanny, when they introduce um, Super Save and Crimson Commando and, and uh, Stonewall, when Wolverine smells Gene and goes nuts knocking yeah. Storm out. Yeah, yeah. 
So, like, I was like, well, that, the Wolverine stuff, yeah, but I agree with you. This is putting the Gene th- on Gene as well now. Before, it was well, kind of like Gene going, f- you're kind of hot, but, you know, whatever. Yeah, well, you brought up a good scene that I forgot about because it was drawn so terribly. Um, but in uh, Executioner, not Executioner, what's the one in Genosha? Um, Extinction Agenda. Extinction Agenda, where they make out in the pre- Prison. So I mean, oh, yeah. at least at that point, Gene had some feelings. They were starting to put um, the Gene on, on Gene's side too. Yeah. Yeah, I forgot about that one. Well, um, I liked Quicksilver well, anyway, yeah. plan. <laughs> <laughs> I liked that they brought in the fact that he could operate as fast as or faster than a computer of the '90s. Um, whenever he gives the time frame and set and, and gives a measurement in thousands of a second. Okay, as a mathematician. When you're using levels of precision that have no meaning, it's just kind of silly. I will buy that Quicksilver can think at a speed where thousands of a second is meaningful. But while he is saying the words, <laughs> so much perfect. time is right. going by that it doesn't matter. <laughs> Whole seconds is fine data. I mean, Quicksilver. Um, Maybe they didn't understand what he was saying. He said it like this. Yeah, right. <laughs> I know that Scott mentions the whole, you know, we're going down in this plane from space and Jean's holding us together. It's kind of like whenever she turned into Phoenix, but I thought of it three pages earlier. So I just <laughs> want that down. Um, and let's see the page where, yeah, Kitty's like, I can't take it. First Ilyana and now Logan. It's just little drops of dialogue from her, but I'm so glad to have seen some of Kitty's emotions in reaction to all of this mentioned on the page. Cause like we got so little of that. Like I said before, um, that just seeing it here was nice. Um, let's see what else. I had two other notes. It's easy to feel bad for Logan whenever he feels the need to prove himself. He's been out for two weeks. He's lost his metal bones. His psychological trauma has got him totally messed up in the head. His healing factor is on the fritz. He wonders if the team is going to kick him out. Do I even still have a place on this team? And I can I can see that. I can feel that. Now, granted, he ends the scene by walking away voluntarily, but that's a different situation. He can choose to leave the team. That's a different emotion than um, being out. kicked off the team. Um, but we get to the claws. And whenever I've been on the show before, I've kind of talked about my feelings on how the bone claws fit into continuity, but I feel like we should at least talk about this. So when he mentions, how come I don't have any memories of using my claws before I got the metal claws? What are our headcanon answers to that question? I'm trying to remember how much of his life before the claws does he even remember. If nothing else, there's the World War II scene in the X-Men 267 or whatever that was. But yeah. there's other stuff. There's all of the... Team did X. he have his claws on all the team stuff? Not yet. So my so, personal headcanon is that something happened that made him forget he had claws. And so he never tried to use them. Which is a little bit tenuous because it's kind of a muscle and I feel like he could just pop them involuntarily. <laughs> right. Like here. Like, like here. here, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I you could say and could you know retcon that then all the memory suppression weapon X intentionally made him forget. If nothing else, like as a way if they ever had to appeal to him, maybe in any kind of voluntary capacity, they can say, "Well, we're the, we're the ones that gave you claws, right? You left your claws. That's us. We did that." Um, 
Yeah, or otherwise, John, I like your idea, and I've always kind of thought too, just maybe, maybe something so traumatic happened around his claws, and he pushed it out. Um, Not the so, claws, the memory. Right, the memory. Yes. <laughs> if you push the claws out, then they'd be there. Right. Um, I think that Cameron, the, what do you think, Cameron? I was say, I kind of think that the uh, the claw thing, you know. Bone claws are not nearly as useful as adamantium claws. And so I think the idea of, of him having his memories being so scrambled from earlier in life, the memories he has, I mean, how useful is a bone claw, really? I mean, if he's cutting a person, yes. But if he's like fighting, like World War II, things like that, it's not like he's running around with bones. I mean, he's got guns and other things that are going on. And so I think you could you could make the argument that the the way in which he's always using adamantium claws at all times, bone claws wouldn't be nearly as useful. And so he'd be using them far less. And so maybe the memories of those specific times are scrambled. And so his memories that he does have of the, of the old days are, are just, they're just not in there. They're not, they weren't as useful, I guess. Well, that actually, right? that actually could work. Cause I mean, maybe, I mean, I haven't, I'm not reading the issues, you know, recently, so I can't say specifics of, of exactly, but like, that uh, Team 7 stuff that they were talking about, or not Team 7, that's Wildstrom, but, you know, that Team X, whatever <laughs> Team it was, where mm-hmm. it was like Maverick and him and Sabretooth, he was a spy, he was a secret agent. He's not going to be giving out more information, or at least he shouldn't be giving out more information than it's necessary, especially when he probably does not trust Creed very much. So why would he let him know, I have this additional weapon I can use against you if necessary? You know, yeah. it would make more sense to let him find out when he pops him in the stomach. Right. <laughs> Like and a knife. Oh well, yeah, bone claws. A knife in your boot. I'm sorry, what? I said like a knife in your boot, right? It's just yeah, that's your right. secret weapon hidden in case you in case you have to do something. But I don't know. Anyway, I was thinking about how I I was I remember at the time being very conflicted on whether I thought the bone claws were stupid or not. Right. Uh, I think now I've I've come around to where I think overall it's cool that they existed and that I'm glad that he had them. But I, I was just thinking about I remember specifically me and Jason having the <laughs> of whether or not whether or not this was a stupid thing that they did right um but but anyway and, now, and like Jason, just taking it so far for granted and it's just like oh well, of course he has bone claws right yeah it, it was is. such a shocking thing though when it happened nine right. three well I think once you get origin um I feel like that makes a good case for the bone claws and so that becomes like okay I'm I'm good with this now right um and and I was just gonna say that I've like Jason, I've never been Team Wolverine and Jean, so <laughs> I don't. I don't love that either. But my brain is thinking about and his claws made of bones, and his bones are his claws in his hands. <laughs> in his hands, they are popping. Anyways, um, speaking of popping the claws, my last thought was we have a new sound effect, and he oh, actually yeah. comments when he talks about how they cut through his hands every time, like that's new. So. I know there are occasional references to like metal openings on his hands. Yeah, the house. But you never see them unless he's wearing gloves and it's like they're coverings more uh, than housings. N- not entirely. It depends on the artist. There are several artists that drew him with bare hands and he still had the little tubes on the okay. top of his. So the snick sound is actually the metal on metal as they come out of the sheaths. Yeah. Okay. Which kind of goes to the whole like bionic sense. He's got like moving metal parts. Uh, when early descriptions of his being, you know, sort of right. bionic or whatever. Um, but yeah, uh, this was 
I liked the second half of this issue more than the first half of this issue because they're they're dealing with the emotions of Wolverine and the letter to Jubilee. Yeah, that was a pretty good one. Um, That's all I had. And Cameron, I I know you got to talk a little bit, but I think we kind of glazed over. Did you have any other thoughts from the issue in general? That was the main thing. I I agree with, uh, I I forgot which one of you mentioned about you had, they had more uh, pages and they had story in the first part of this book. I felt like a lot of that kind of, drug i mean i enjoyed it all but i felt like it drug a little uh for me the the once he you get the the blown call the 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 page the full page spread where he pops the bone claws i felt like that's where the book got better for me i guess i enjoyed it the, the stuff with jubilee especially i thought was uh, was the highlight of the issue for me and we got to figure a way to add uh shunk to your uh yeah it's definitely yeah. um I forgot the about that. is just really, it's really gross sound. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we can change the name of your show. This is the podcast that goes. <laughs> yeah, it goes. Um, yeah. All right. Well, Cameron, when do you want to grade Wolverine 75? Um, I think I'm still going to go with a five. I feel like I, I I should retroactively change my X-Men up to six so that I can give this one. <laughs> because I, I definitely enjoyed this less, but I, but I still enjoyed it a lot. So. Or maybe a, a soft five for me on this one. Okay. What about you, Al? Did Al give his thoughts yet? Oh, maybe that's what I meant when I went back to Cameron. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, I'll do both real quick. That's fine. Um, well, one or two things. One, on the, the difference of the claws, I always kind of, and what he's talking about, how it hurts, I took it to be like the adamantium claws are sharp because they're sharper. They're more, yeah. and they're more streamlined. So it's going to hurt, but not hurt as much. It's going to make a clean cut. The bone claws... They're kind of going to more rip through the skin instead of cut like a scalpel. So I mean, that's going to be that. That's what I took for more of the difference in the sound and also for what he's talking about how it hurts. Like this is a different type of pain. You know, the other one was this nice slice. You know, nice little slice, and the claws came right out. This like rips through skin because look at those claws. You know, it's yeah. going to be different. So that's what I took it as. Um, so one or two things on this. First of all, kudos to Adam Cooper. Unlike an uncanny where they had to get filling people. He did two issues. I mean, granted, they're not the same month, but still, he did two issues of this. He did X Men and this one no, on his own. They're brothers. That's Andy. And Are those Adam. Andy that did that? Yeah. One? Oh, yeah. my bad. But still, kudos to the two of them. They got the whole issues out on their own. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was. Well, I'm looking up some stuff about this. By the way, I found it was on what Marvel.fandom.com. It says note during the 1992 X Writers Conference for Executioner's Song. Peter David frustrated over the lack of actual X-Factor characters in X-Factor 85. Because I, I remember that issue. That was just Wolverine, Archangel, and Cable. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> he joked that maybe Magneto could just pull Wolverine's adamantium skeleton out of his body. However, oh. as Fabian Nicieza later recalled, none of us laughed because we thought it was a great idea. <laughs> and that passing thought became Fatal Attractions. So, wow. Okay. This was Peter David's idea, apparently, to rip the adamantium out. And just him being bitter, a bitter idea. Yeah. Okay. It reminds me of the let's just kill him conversation about that led to Superman's death. Oh, yeah. The conference <laughs> where like every year someone says, let's kill him. Hmm, maybe we'll do it this year. But I want to give some credit to Larry Hama for some uh, writing here. I enjoyed this one a lot. I also liked some of the little bits. Like, yes, the quotes over doing the piloting made sense. But I also liked early in the issue where they actually show Bishop and him switching places. Because it's like, okay, right. Hebbett established Bishop was flying the plane to bring him up there. Everyone gets on. Bishop is obviously on the plane flying it. So we're actually going to show, well, obviously he's flying it. We have to have him switch now. I'm like, that was a nice little touch. Because reading it, I'm like, why are you doing that? What's the point? 
And then there's an actual point that comes up later. I was like, oh, that's nice. I, I like that. Good job. So nice job of Larry. Um, nice, nice bit of Wolverine planning on dying. I actually thought that was the reason he didn't want to be uh, have any drugs. It was not so much that that's my body healing. I mean, although he does say that, but I think he actually thought this might be it for him. So he wanted to be awake until he died, as opposed to just falling asleep before he died. You know, he wanted to be awake until the end. At least that's yeah. how I took it. Yeah. Um, Xavier actually seemed to be respecting Wolverine's wishes when they were inside his brain. You know, as opposed to saying, no, you're going to live because I said so. It was like, <laughs> okay, um, not that he wanted to. It's like, if that's what you truly feel is it's your time, you know, then there's no, you know, goodbye. You know, I'm not going to force you. You know, granted, he he kept he decided instead of himself to live. But hey, you know. Xavier actually respected someone else's wishes. Right. Who knew? <laughs> and the, yeah, I really did enjoy that back part at the end with finding the claws, but also the talk with Jubilee. That was really cute. And yeah. the note and leaving her his hat. Yeah, that was pretty cool. That was good. So I did enjoy that. Oh, but apparently, so I guess Kitty stayed in the mansion, even though we didn't see her in 25, because obviously there's no way that she could have flown over from Excalibur from England since, <laughs> you know, all the EMP thing. So just want to say, by the way, Maybe that would she would have been a better choice than Gambit for stealth. No energy powers. Just saying. Uh, yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. And I will give this a five. I really enjoyed this one. Okay. Awesome. Thanks, Al. What about you, John? When are you going to grade Wolverine seventy-five? Um, it would be a six, except for the first half. So it's going to come down to a five. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and go six out of six. I was enough pleased with kind of the trippy art the first part that i kind of glossed over the story rhythm of it which i agree it was not incredible but i i enjoyed the art enough uh you know we got to see adam Hubert draw saber tooth we got the kind of fun little energy figure of magneto um like in a very abstract kind of way so so i still enjoyed the art on the front part enough i agree story-wise the second half is where it's at and then of course the bug claws is such a big deal so i'm gonna go ahead and go six out of six and al if that story was kind of an epilogue it's 25 is really the last part of the magneto story and this kind of wraps up the wolverine story but there's still a couple of loose ends and excalibur gets the scraps in excalibur 71 uh, excalibur gets the scraps <laughs> that sounds like a uh <laughs> you get the epilogue of the epilogue right <laughs> That really is Excalibur's relationship to the X-Books right now, though. Yeah, yes. it really is. <laughs> yes. So we have Excalibur 71, Crossing Swords, covered by Joe Maduera and Joe Bennett, uh, writer Scott Lubdell, pencils by Ken Lashley, Derek Robertson, and Matthew Ryan, inkers by Cam Smith, Randy Elliott, Randy Emerson, Emerlin, and Mark Nelson, colorist Joe Rosas, uh, letterer Bill Oakley, Paperso, David Sharp, editor... Is Suzanne Gaffney, Bob Harris, Richard Harris, Ed Harris, and Neil Patrick Harris, because we needed more names there, too, because <laughs> they didn't have enough there. All right. Oh, there's my... Okay, so this is a few issues after Alan Davis has left the book, and Marvel Editorial decided he should be treated with the same respect as Grant Morrison, so everything he has done has been wiped away, and all we have left <laughs> in Excalibur is Nightcrawler, Phoenix 2, Rachel Summers, and Kitty Pride, and probably Lockheed 2, but he's not in this one, so... Who knows? No, I'm not still bitter about the whole Alan Davis thing. Why do you ask? Right, right. All right, so one of the acolytes, Spore, who was captured after the hospital attack shown in X-Factor 92, has been kept on Muir Island for treatment, but he escaped during the EMP attack that happened at X-Men 25. He's fighting Nightcrawler, who almost kills him, but doesn't thanks to Kitty and Rachel. Turns out Spore releases some type of 
homicide-inducing pheromone, and he has a death wish. But the three of them go to bring him back when Professor X, Cyclops, and Jean Grey arrive. Apparently, Colossus has some kind of untreated head wound, and they want Kitty to Skype him up at Avalon, saying she wants to join him, <laughs> to trick him into coming over so they can treat him. After some arguing with the professor over being tri- talked to like an adult and allowing others to make their choices that even if you don't agree with them, Kitty reluctantly agrees. So she makes the call to Avalon, and while their interim leader, Exodus, does not fully trust them, he allows Colossus to go, but only for one hour. Uh, this transmission this transmission is intercepted by Cable, who wants some payback for what happened to him in X-Force 25. While they wait, Rachel and Jean have a bit of a heart-to-heart, and Jean apologizes for treating Rachel so crappy before. She also hints that there's a chance Rachel could be born soon in this timeline, because there are only certain societally accepted steps that you have to take before you <laughs> It's the only way it can happen, people. <laughs> right. Thank God I knew about I wish I'd known that in high school, because I was worried about that, but apparently it wasn't an issue. <laughs> When Colossus arrives, he and Kitty talk for a bit until it becomes apparent, even to him, that she is not going with him. Jean then uses her telepathic power to freeze him so they can deal with his injury without him fighting back. They take him inside and actually help him, and even convince him to turn back to human form. And when he is no longer armored up physically and mentally, he break, Colossus breaks down over everything that has happened to him and his family, crying while Kitty holds him. Meanwhile, Cable has arrived, but Rachel prevents him from causing a problem. The two of them realize there's a connection of some kind between them, but with more, when more acolytes show up on your island, she just knocks them out so she can deal with them instead. The three acolytes, uh, I believe it's Voight, I have no idea how to pronounce this one, Unisone, does anyone know? Unisone, maybe? Sure, let's go with that. And red shirt number five. <laughs> are facing off against Nightcrawler, and once Rachel and uh, Cyclops show up to help, they aren't a problem. Before they can call more acolytes to help, Colossus comes out saying he still intends to go back with them, and there is no need to fight. His plan is to be there and to try and temper Magneto's plans, or excess or whoever's in charge, to be less Hama or genocidal. You know, a little bit less of that at least. Everything done, the X-Men board the Blackbird to go home and offer to drop Excalibur off, but the three decide they want to stay on Muir Island and rebrand the team as an extension of Moore's work, instead of just an extension of the X-Men's work. Something different. Uh, sure. to help. And also, Kitty and Rachel apparently get new costumes. Yeah. Oh, and since I didn't get to say this in the synopsis, and I said the other ones, Wolverine 75 and Uncanny X-Men 304. I said all the other issues, I might as well say those. Oh. <laughs> okay. All right, what are your general thoughts, Al? Um, as much as I said I did enjoy Lobdell's work on Uncanny X-Men, I thought he did some good issues with them and good work. I was not a fan of his run on Excalibur. It just felt like they were like, just make it X-Men and let's just use the popular X-Men issues. I mean, characters. So get rid of everyone else that was fun or enjoyable from Alan Davis's run. Right. I mean, at least they're trying to now, since they got rid of all the purpose Excalibur before, this issue is more of Excalibur trying to have a purpose and probably trying to increase sales by telling people, look, Excalibur has a purpose here now again. Please read it. (laughs) Right. I mean, there's some stuff here that will stick around in Excalibur. I believe Spore is going to be like a support, uh, somewhat supporting character slash prisoner for a while because they're going to bring in somebody who basically they're going to kind of hint is going to be Ahab. Oh, okay. Instead, because it's obviously not going to be Cable like it was originally hinted at. Right, right. So the art on this one, not that, even though I've liked Derek Robinson and other things, the art here was not that great. Um, I did like some of the emotional issues between Kitty and the Professor and Kitty and Colossus. Yes. And also also the Jean Grey and Rachel stuff, because last time Jean saw Rachel, Rachel and Jean saw each other, Jean was pretty crappy to her. Yeah. And was like, get the hell away from me. So I did <laughs> like that. And they're also, I like the fact that they're 
bringing up more of the whole cable thing with her and as him and Rachel trying to figure out why they seem to have a some kind of connection together. So I did like that part. But um, on the whole, this is what I you know this is not one of the part of the better runs of Excalibur. This is one of the downtimes I think for Excalibur. Okay. You know this is not the this is not the good stuff for it. So. <laughs> It's kind of like limping along, and it feels like the crossover. They gave it the part of the crossover that just kind of limps along at the end as well. Right. All right. Any general thoughts, Cameron? Nearly as much <laughs> as I like <laughs> the rest of this uh, this one. Um, I did really like I really like Colossus's outfit. As yeah. I think if you took off the stupid earpiece, uh, this would almost be a better a better outfit than what he what he normally wears, but. It's a, a big hot take, maybe I don't know, um, but I, I don't know. Something about the purple and the red. I, th- I thought he looked. I thought he looked really cool. Yeah. Um, but but uh, yeah, I mean, I thought the 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 scene where the professor basically screams at Kitty. I thought that was kind of uh, of, oh, I mean, it makes sense in the context, but it was. I felt like it was too much, like too much calling because he calls her a because he call her a brat, I think, or something like that. Spoiled. I forgot what exactly he says, but he yeah. calls her something that I, I thought was a spoiled child. That's right. That I thought was a bit excessive. Um, I did also like that in this, in this, at least for the Acolytes, they lean back into the kind of cultness of it all because it has the, where Colossus is talking about Kitty being his last tie to, to his old life. And he's going to sever that, which again, back to the, the commentary about the cultness of it all. Uh, made me and then of course it's like they're pulling him out of this cold and it's less than a less than a rescue mission and more like you know if you watch one of those documentaries about people trying to save people from cults like it kind of felt felt um, almost more like that than a than a rescue operation necessarily but um yeah i think that's the only comments i had necessarily oh and uh i'm looking at the issue now so he calls her a spoiled child yeah, there you go. He yeah. says, stop carrying on like a spoiled child who clamps her hands over her ears when she hears when she doesn't wish to hear something. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, he does apologize for it after she calls him. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, I'm not saying that. I'm just like, talk to me. Like, let's have a discussion about this. Don't just tell me. Do this. <laughs> yeah. All right. John, any particular thoughts from you on this issue? Um, Excalibur is in a really weird place at this point. Uh, I agree with Al's assessment. It feels like. They've jettisoned whatever Alan Davis had been doing whenever he left and wrapped up his plot lines. And now they're trying to build something new. And I'm not sure what it is yet. Um, that being said, 90s X-Men is not always good at relationships. But I'm really glad that we finally we do get to see Kitty and Colossus deal with his conversion, even if it's through a betrayal, even if it's the choice that they I don't entirely like the choices they make for this story. Well, some yes, some no. Um, but at least they address the connection between these two characters that has been set aside for so many years in the books at this point. Um, right. Because we're 71 issues into Excalibur, and we have rarely gotten any interaction between the X-Men and the X-X-Men. Well, for a long time, though, Excalibur thought the other X-Men were dead. Right. So... And it's only relatively recently that they found out they were alive. The X-Men were back and alive and functioning for a while. Before right. they ever bother to pick up the phone to Excalibur. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I can definitely see the mechanics of story plot uh, gears revolving in Scott Labdell's head during the planning for this arc. Because I bet you he 
he wrote that annual where Colossus gets the head wound. Yes. He wrote that and he wrote this. And it feels like the sort of thing where he, what can I do to tie into the events of Fatal Attractions? I can have them try to get Colossus back over using a plot device I'm going to plant in an annual before the story even starts. And it feels organic. Right. So that was a, you know, a nice choice on his part. But like I said earlier, one of the story choices they could have is, oh, he had a head wound. Now that we've healed that, he's all better and he's not going to go work for Magneto now. But no, his grief is real. His conflict is real. His disenchantment, disenfranchisement, really, uh, with the mutant um, movement under Xavier is real. And so his departure is 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 still in place at the end of the story. Um, love, love, loved the scene with Rachel and Jean. Mm-hmm. I fe- I have the impression that this era for these two characters, they don't get a whole lot together. They haven't so far. And I feel like they're not going to. That's just the impression I have. I don't know if that's changed in more modern books since Jean has come back. I don't know if she and Rachel have a relationship now. I would love for that to be the case. I just don't know. Kind um, of. <laughs> what was that? Kind of is the answer. Kind of. The answer is kind mm-hmm. of. Um, Cable's inclusion felt super random. Felt like it was only hinting at the potential siblingness between Nathan and Rachel, since right. they still haven't played the Summers card on Nathan. Um, feel like they're just dancing around that. Uh, like Al said earlier, they hint at the wedding to come with a full-on implication that you can only have a kid if you're married. So well, responsible to do it. <laughs> I mean, sure, 90s conservative boy. Um, hey, I, was, I was still in youth group at this time, so it didn't, even, it didn't even raise any eyebrows for me. My three-year-old daughter in the back of the seat going, if mice don't get married, how do they have babies? You know? um, are y'all familiar with the notion that Scott Summers is not Rachel's father? No. So this is this is not Chris Claremont's script that made it onto the page. This is Chris Claremont word of God kind of canon because he never okay. actually got to use the story idea. But even though Jean Grey and Scott Summers get together and they are Rachel's parents, Scott is not actually the biological father. And no one knows this. But Rachel is the child of Jean Grey and the Phoenix. Oh. I think I heard that the other day, actually. You what? I, think I-, I heard that theory the other day on, uh, on another podcast. Was it the Ray, oh, uh, Jay and Miles podcast? No, it was the Cerebro. Okay. I heard I it heard from Jay one. and Miles whenever they were interviewing Chris Claremont. But um, but yeah, I just think it's an interesting idea. It doesn't really relate to this. I just want to It is interesting. Because um, I think that was supposed to explain why the Phoenix was comfortable in her body and didn't mm-hmm. make her go crazy like it does everyone else. So yeah, fascinating. Huh. And he just never got the chance to bring that onto the page because it took so long to do so many things. <laughs> and then he was gone. <laughs> right. Okay, my last thought on this is Kitty saying to Peter, in the ways that mattered, you were there. And I get that she's comforting. I get that she's saying whatever he emotionally needs to hear. But she is lying (laughs) because you were there in every way that truly mattered. No. To Ilyana, the one way that would have mattered for Peter to be there was for Peter to be there. Right. And he wasn't. Now. Her pain from that absence is no longer existent because Ilyana is no longer existent. 
unless she is in limbo or I don't even know how she gets brought back from the dead 20 years later. But anyways, but yeah, I took issue with uh, with Kitty's choice of comforting words. Overall, I mean, this was an interesting denouement. This is an interesting like coda to the epilogue or whatever. It, it, it did address a few things. And I'm glad that they addressed and it had some good moments in it, but it was not a strong Excalibur issue and it was not an important Fatal Attractions issue. Okay. Well, um, I think I agree with a lot of what you all have said. I like the fact that, because there's always the unspoken hope, right? We're going to heal his head wound, and he's going to be back to normal. I like they did a different path. Um, I agree that Kitty's words are probably not accurate, but I think a lot of times, I, I guess it, it kind of feels honest to me, because I think when when you're a friend sharing grief, but not exactly understanding someone else's grief, because it's different, right? She lost her best friend. He lost his sister. I think you try to be comforting, but sometimes you don't really understand what that person is going through. Uh, the grief's not the same. So I, I think I think it's at least an interesting conversation that they addressed it. Um, and I really, I don't think I was quite as hard on the art as you guys. Um, I don't think it's awesome, but it's not too bad. And then I really enjoyed a lot of the personality moments. So I, I felt like it was still a pretty solid chapter, if not short on action. So I guess I'm, gonna, I'm still going to give it a pretty solid uh, four out of six claws. I guess we'll go backwards to Al. John, what did you want to give it? Um, I was also going to give it a four, but it's like a low four. Okay. And Cameron, what you got? Um, I, I'm going to go three. I felt like this one found uh, there was, you know, there's a few moments, but I thought like overall it, it felt it felt pretty flat for me. Okay. And then Al, we'll wrap up with you. What did you think it of this was, one? It was a fine issue. I mean, I have more issues with the art than you did. You know, but I did like the person, like you said, the personality stuff I did, you know, the interpersonal stuff I did like. Actually, I almost forgot to mention, I did really like the fact that Rachel could hear the computer professor. That was amusing as hell. Right. And their little conversation even after Cable was unconscious, that was fun. Like them still talking. So I, I was amused by that. Um, I guess I'm somewhere between it, like a high three and a low four. Okay. You know, it was fine. It wasn't that bad, but it wasn't great. Okay. It was all right. Fair enough. Okay. So we, we've gone pretty long, but just maybe one or two sentences each. How do you feel about this event as a celebration of 30 years of X-Men? you think it lived up to the hype overall? Kind of what are your thoughts there? And we'll start with Cameron. Um, yeah, I think it did. I, I thought um, I thought overall it was, it was really, um, really well done. I felt like some big things happened. You know, sometimes you get these big events – um, I can think of some recent one, ones where it, there's a huge event. It's just like, okay, no, no, nothing really matters that comes out of this. Uh, whereas this one, I felt like you have some real lasting uh, developments, things that are going to matter. You know, Mag- Magneto as he turns back to evil. This is the beginning of that, but but raising the stakes of that quite a bit. I think. Um, I mean, it was it was worth it. You know, I mean, it was uh, yeah, good overall. <laughs> okay. What about you, Al? Uh, no, I mean, despite my issues in that one one part in the middle, there it was actually a pretty decent one. I mean, we brought back, since he's evil again anyway, they used Magneto, who was their villain in the first issue, so that makes sense, and really upped the ante with him. Like I said, complete god-crazy Magneto. But they also did some stuff here. I mean, they... You know, he, was the, he wasn't he was just still a regular threat at the end of this. He was dealt with. Um, you know, they did some stuff that moved the series along and changed things. You know, they brought Cable back to X-Force. They rebranded Excalibur. Um, 
they extended, you know, they ended some random plot threads of like Cable and other characters and started some new ones with like Colossus joining the Acolytes. So there was some actual things that happened. There was some actual real. Oh, and of course, I forgot the Wolverine, you know, the whole adamantium thing out and him leaving the team. So, I mean, they did some stuff with this, but it wasn't just big fight issues. They actually did some actual changes that would now change things going forward. So you got you at least got something, you know, you could get definitely got something out of this one. It wasn't like the book was exact. You could have skipped this and everything was exactly the same beyond the big oh, fights. Yeah. You would have lost if you missed this one. <laughs> yeah, stuff actually happened and changed. Yeah. You know, they actually did some change to it. So overall, pretty, de- you know, pretty decent crossover. Pretty decent storyline. Awesome. What about you, John? I'm honestly torn um, for a 30th anniversary story. Certainly in the modern era of the X-Men being Wolverine and the X-Men a.k.a. Wolverine, Xavier, and Magneto in the X-Men. <laughs> right. This definitely is emblematic of that. Even though Wolverine didn't play a huge role in most... Well, because of the nature of the crossover, you know, in the earlier chapters, your big players didn't have big players because they were they were build chapters. Right. But um, this was Xavier's and Magneto's story with a huge heaping spoonful of importance to Wolverine ta- uh, mixed into it. Um, so I... You know, it does that well. Did this celebrate 30 years of the X-Men and the X-Men as a team and the X-Men and all the stuff the X-Men have done as X-Men? I'm just not really sure that it did that. Um, Doesn't make it necessarily a bad story. I think the story and the ideas presented in it are a bit greater and higher than maybe the execution of some of them. But I'm also not wanting to sound down and I liked so much of what this did. And I like the story. Um, I just, it feels like, okay, so this is your 30th anniversary. And it's going to be followed by a 30th anniversary X-Men Avengers story that <laughs> I don't remember loving. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to remember Blood Ties. Uh, obviously, we will, we'll talk about it a little bit on the podcast. There's not much Wolverine to speak of. but it's, it's the last thing that I read uh, yeah. in my 90s project. I'm not entirely certain I finished Bloodlines. I think I did, though. But um, <laughs> But yeah. Uh, decent story, decent execution for the most part. Anniversary story, I'm a bit eh. Okay, fair enough. Well, regardless, that was 30 years of the X-Men and nine years of the podcast to go snitch. And guys, I cannot thank y'all enough for celebrating with me. So thank you guys very much. Um, why don't we go around and do any plugs and we'll get specific to your Twitter handles, all that fun stuff. So uh, Cameron, do you have anything you want to talk about? Um, I have no plugs. I'm at Cameron Sinclair on uh, Twitter if you're interested. And um, if you're looking for history classes, you can sign up for me at DallasCollege.com or .edu. I mean, <laughs> all of my classes are full right now, so sorry. <laughs> so don't yeah, actually. Yeah, right. in spring, spring. Okay, not your cover. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and Al, how about you? Oh, well, there's two. You can find me two spots. Uh, first, like I said earlier in the show, Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast. So if you like Marvel cosmic type stuff, go there. Uh, find it Resurrections. Well, pretty much type in Adam Warlock or Thanos to any podcatcher you use, and we'll probably pop up. And on Twitter, I'm at, at Adam Thanos Pod. And you can also find me every week on the Legion Pod Cast, where we talk about the uh, late 80s, early 90s DC sci-fi series Legion, not Legion of Superheroes, this is one the acronym, which includes the uh, kind of par- the parody character of Wolverine, Lobo. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, more a uh, pastiche, right? Well, it, especially in the <laughs> earlier parts when Keith Giffen was doing the miniseries, he definitely was more of a parody of that type of character. Yeah. yeah. Later on, it became more of a pastiche or more of a that type of just that type of character. But right. definitely the miniseries that Giffen's doing. Oh yeah, he's playing it as comedy. Okay, cool. Is that pronounced pastiche or bastitch? <laughs> <laughs> it's nice. frag and pastiche, right? <laughs> Awesome. Was I and the Chuck, last one to figure out that that word was like a combination of two gendered insults, bastard and bitch? Um, no, obviously no, not. Because no. <laughs> I didn't think me and Alan just realized that. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, the, the disciple has become the teacher. <laughs> yeah. But, oh yeah, you can find that on the Legion of po- Substitute Podcasters. Nice. Very good. And John, what do you want to talk about? Oh, you know. I read comic. I podcast about. So I'm at Twitter at John Reads Comics, no H. Um, the Marvel show that I mentioned earlier, Make Ours Marvel. If you want to check out a podcast going through the first seven years of Marvel Comics, go to makeoursmarvel.com, at makeoursmarvel on Twitter, or search Make Ours Marvel in your podcaster of choice. If you like Superman, if you like Crisis on Infinite Earths, if you like to know what Superman was doing during Crisis on Infinite Earths, um, then keep an eye out. I Keep follow me on Twitter, and I'll, I'll mention what comes up. I'm not entirely sure what vehicle I'm going to use to release it. It might be on my website, JohnReadsComics.com. That's what I'm leaning towards. But Superman in Crisis is what you should search for um, after January 3rd, because that's definitely when it's going to drop. Awesome. Very good. Very good. Well, um, for the Wolverine podcast, it goes Nick. Of course, you can like the Facebook page if you so desire. Uh, Twitter is at SnickCast. Um, Man, I just nine years is nuts. I would have never thought I would do this show this long. Um, but I, I mean, I, what I really wanted to do besides always cover the event was, you know, probably my favorite part about this whole journey has been all the friends I've made along the way, and to have a small sampling of of some of those friends that have been with me for quite a, a long stretch of the journey has meant a lot to me. So. Um, Thank you guys again. I do want it before. I know he had to drop, but I do want to mention what Grant has going on. Um, his Twitter is about at about Superman, and of course he has the Truth, Justice, and Hope podcast about Superman as well, and it's really good. And he has some older podcasts and stuff about Cable and Captain America that are also great to listen to. Um, but yeah, definitely check him out. And but you know, I don't know. I don't. You know, I I think about how long am I going to keep doing this? And I don't really know. <laughs> but um, I figured I'm this far. I have to at least go 10 years and 500 episodes, and then maybe we'll we'll make a decision after that. <laughs> but, but really, guys, I cannot thank you all enough for, for coming on the show and for listeners who have, have – whether you've been around all nine years or, you know, two days, um, just thanks for giving me a shot and listening. And, yeah, I guess everyone, please stay well, stay safe out there, and – Thanks for listening to a really long episode. <laughs> but <laughs> until next time, hugs and snacks, everyone. Bye-bye. Crickets. And say bye. snacks. Oh, <laughs> and that too. <laughs> I thought it was in short. Oh, yeah, that's right. Short. <laughs>